genre. It's Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Scott Corelli. I'm Nick Jimenez. Today, we begin a brand new miniseries on the Scream franchise with the film that taught us all what happens when someone takes their love of scary movies one step too far in December of 1996, Wes Craven's Scream. And we have a guest joining us to talk about slasher film rules, ghost face killers, and cellular telephones, fellow podcaster and cat's shit poster, Brian Green. Okay, I I was going to do the uh, the ghost face voice, but now you call me a cat shit poster, and I can't really do that now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to talk about this movie. I love it so much. Well, let's uh, let's let's get right into it, Brian. We like to start off every one of our episodes by sort of talking about I don't know the first time that we saw this movie or our memories of watching it. What, what does this movie mean to you? What does this franchise mean to you? What is your background with Scream? Uh, so as a kid, I never really watched horror movies. I hadn't really seen anything scary ex- with the exception the no- very notable exception of the shining which i saw very inappropriately young like uh, i think first grade uh kindergarten wow. or first grade and oh that that's a whole story there like i drew some pictures of like my of like blood coming out of elevators and red rum written on the walls and I was stuff say, and- how old was danny when it happened to him <laughs> it was inappropriate for him as well nick that's what, Dr. <laughs> that's what dr sleeps about <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh, Scream, I did not see it in theaters. I was in, I believe, the fifth grade. I remember very clearly I was at home and we had like a game slash computer room and my sister and like, I don't know, like six or seven of her friends were sitting there watching a movie and I didn't know what the movie was. So I kind of walked in and, and I sat down and like they accepted me. These kids who were like three years older than me were like letting me watch this movie and that movie turned out to be Scream. It was horribly inappropriate for me at the age and that's okay because i was one of the cool kids i was being accepted by the older cooler kids and so we watched it and i loved it and i begged my parents to buy it on vhs and we bought it on vhs i i watched it a lot like this is a movie that i watched once a week uh several times a week at a couple points mm-hmm. and I didn't know that this was meta. I didn't realize the in-jokes in this mm-hmm. movie and the uh, the references this movie was making. It, it made me discovering those movies, those other films, really fun. Going like, oh, okay, this is what this is. It's just, it was such an interesting experience going through and kind of having that experience backward. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a great movie with some you know amazing performances that you know, I'm sure we'll talk about. Nick, what about you? Don't remember. I, I don't remember... <laughs> 
the, <laughs> the first time that I saw Scream. I know that it was like on cable. Oh. Like on Encore. Yeah. Or one of those channels. But oh, I, okay. I, interestingly, I can remember the first Scream related thing that I ever watched. Not to jump ahead, but like I, the first thing I ever watched was the film class scene from Scream 2. Oh, okay. It was like on IFC, I remember, because it was like, you had, had the curse words in it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, Scream, I, I know what these are because of like scary movie and pop culture and stuff. So I watched the film's class scene and I'm like, well, this is a horror movie? Yeah. This is sick. <laughs> the dialogue's really cool. They're talking about movies. Yeah. At the time, I didn't think I liked horror because what was playing at the time was like, the Platinum Dunes kind of stuff, and that mm-hmm. wasn't really my vibe. Platinum Dunes and uh, J horror remakes. Yeah, that was that. That was that era, and and torture porn. Uh huh. This is my ignorance talking. I didn't know horror movies could be like smart, yeah, and likable and funny. Yeah, and so that's what got me to watch Scream One. Is, okay, is watching that scene and being like, this is kind of cool. It's a good scene. Yeah. So for me, this is kind of a big question because I I don't think a lot of people can pinpoint a moment in their life where their entire sense of being changed over the course of two hours, but I can. And it was the first time that I saw Scream. I saw this in theaters opening weekend. I it was, if it wasn't December 20th, 1996, it was December 21st, 1996. I was living with my dad at this point And my stepmother loved watching Lifetime. Like she watched all the Lifetime movies and all, all of that. And Scream was heavily marketed on Lifetime. They also both watched Party of Five. So they were big fans of Nev Campbell. They had both, t- they had taken me to see uh, The Craft earlier that year because Nev Campbell was in it. And Scream was being heavily marketed on Lifetime because. It was this, you know, it was like this cross between a slasher film and like a so almost popular. like a like a crime, true crime kind of vibe, right? Yeah. And so they knew about Scream before really the any of the word of mouth got around about Scream. I think I think my dad might have known about how this was like a big sell, like the script was a big sell because my dad tended to follow stuff like that, and we'll get into that as we go into the background of the movie. But needless to say, they took me to see it opening weekend. It opened December 20th, so it was like a Christmas release. And the idea of that, my understanding, was like uh, counter-programming. The idea of releasing a horror film during the Christmas holiday season sounded insane to most people. But I guess it was more of an experiment. They were like, let's let's try and see if this works out like this. And it, it ended up working out in their favor. Dimension, baby. Yeah. We'll talk about those guys because I have no choice. Uh, they're part of the story. Um, but <laughs> uh, our duty, dear listeners. Yeah, we do have a duty. It won't be the first time that we have to deal with that sort of thing on this show. So, so we went and I didn't know that I was about to watch a horror movie. I had no idea. My parents didn't tell me because I don't know that they knew that it was really a horror movie. I think they maybe thought it was more of a thriller than a horror movie. Wow. Yeah. So they had no idea. So we went. One of the first R-rated movies that I saw, I think the very first one uh, was The Craft. I mean, in theaters. I think I saw RoboCop when I was like 10. But like this was, you know, going to a movie theater to see an R-rated movie. That's a big deal when you're a kid. I was I, I, I felt like I entered that that movie theater not knowing anything about myself or my identity or the things that I liked. 
you know, I, I like things the kids like, normal things the kids liked. And then when I walked out of that theater, I was like, I want to be a writer and I want to make a movie like that. Wow. Then, weirdly, it was, I think the next year, I watched a pilot episode for a TV show in which the main character loved movies, made movies with his friends. And I was like, oh, my God, like, you can just do that. You can just make movies. This is amazing. And so these two things back to back broke my brain apart. And that show was Dawson's Creek, also created by Kevin Williamson. So Kevin Williamson just became like this iconic hero to me where I just studied everything. I tracked down the scream uh, screenplay. Um, actually, the screenplay. The screenplay. <laughs> actually, no, that's not true because I had no way of doing that. I did not track it down. I instead watched the movie, my VHS copy, and I would watch it, pause it, and then write the script myself. So I fully transcribed Scream in a screenplay format because I wanted to read it to figure out why it's so good. Okay, Scott, I literally did this exact same thing. Really? Yes, as a kid. Like, I, I went through and I. Uh, what what movies I did? I did it with Back to the Future. Sure. I Natch. did it with... Oh, God. What terrible... I know I did it with some bad movies, too. I think I did with with The uh, Nutty Professor. God, yeah. that was terrible. <laughs> I, I think I, I only did it with two films. I did it with this, and I did it with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, uh-huh. And to this day, I think I can... If I were to be put on the spot, I think I could almost quote both of those movies ba- like front to back, just uh-huh. in a row. Um, because I watched them so often and because I did that weird transcription thing. So, yeah. So this this changed everything about like what I everything like I didn't even know what I wanted to be. I think I think I thought about like maybe wanting to be like a writer. But at that point, I was thinking more in like R.L. Stein kind of thing. I wasn't thinking about movies because to me as a kid, you don't realize that like real people make those. Like, Mm -hmm. it's so, you know, the idea of movie magic and, like, these amazing people, these heroes, these gods among men, they go out and they make these things that, you know, make us feel good and and it's it's magic. No one knows how they do it. And it wasn't until the back-to-back Scream and Dawson's Creek that I was like, wait, I could do this. And and it was like there was there was nothing else in my life that I wanted um more than to be a screenwriter and a director after this the one two punch of scream and uh Dawson's Creek. I bought Scream, I bought the VHS, I bought it in a widescreen just like I did uh Men in Black. I I found the widescreen co- VHS copy at a Blockbuster, paid way too much money for it and uh and I I probably watched Scream on VHS I would say twice a day almost every day for the almost the entire year before Scream 2 came out. Because wow. I remember thinking when Scream 2 came out, I was like, oh my God, finally. It really felt like it had been like three years and it had been 12 months. That's how I was with my kids too. I don't have lost dreams. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, it was, it, th- this movie means so much to me. This is, is sort of a um, Rosetta Stone for my personality and for just me as a person, as a human being, this is, this movie means the absolute world to me. It, it could easily be my favorite movie very easily. Uh, you know, I have, I feel like I have a lot of favorite movies, but this is definitely in like a top, 
five list of movies that I absolutely adore that I think are absolutely perfect in every way where they're all just sort of like on equal footing and I could call any of them my favorite movie and it would be accurate. So I'm very excited about this franchise. Very excited to talk about this one in particular, though I'm I'm excited to talk about the whole the whole franchise because I think the story of the making of these movies is really one of the like Hollywood's like most fascinating making of stories. I I'm I'm pumped to get into it. So let's do this thing. As Ghostface said, let's get it started. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So we start off with Kevin Williamson. Kevin Williamson was an actor in New York trying to make it on soap operas and theater and anywhere that he could. And in his spare time, he would write. And he would write plays and things, and none of them ever got off the ground. And he was broke and was desperate and so he finally gave he's like i'm gonna give up on acting i'm gonna move to la and i'm gonna be a writer because that's the thing that everyone says that i'm good at so he moves to la and uh this is like 1991 and he writes a screenplay first screenplay ever and it's called killing mrs tingle it's like a a a black comedy and sells it it gets him a manager it gets him an agent all that good stuff. And so he's like, great, I'm, this is working. And so, you know, he sold this script not for a lot of money. Just he basically was so desperate for money and for being able to get all of these things that he needs, like a WGA card and all that stuff, that he took the first offer that came in. And as a result, you know, it didn't last very long. And then he tries to get work. And one of the things that he really wants to do is write for horror. And so he's going to his agent and he's saying, I want you to get me a horror movie. I want to write a horror movie. I, I, I love horror movies. I grew up watching them. I think I'd be really good at writing a horror movie. Get me a horror movie. But his agent is like, hey, it's the mid 90s, man. Horror's dead. No one cares about horror. Freddy Krueger's a joke. Jason's in hell now. Michael <laughs> Myers is in a cult. Like, it's bad. It's like horror is not uh, a genre you want to get into. Nobody is making those movies. And if they are, it's not from WGA minimums. It's it's like really uh, cheap stuff that, you know, you can't do as a as a WGA member. So he's struggling and he is struggling so bad. He's behind on his rent. He's behind on car payments. He takes a house sitting gig to uh, make ends meet. And while he's there, he stays up late and he's watching a like true crime show. And on the true crime show, he learns about Danny Rawling, who is also known as the Gainesville Ripper. He's an American serial killer who murdered a bunch of students in Gainesville, Florida, at the at Florida University um, over four days in late August 1990. And so he was watching this and they're sort of going into detail about how he killed these young college students. And he's freaking himself out, thinking about you know, the, the lives of these co-eds of these victims. And he's thinking about how they never, they don't know who this guy is. They're think he's thinking about, you know, how all of this happened over the course of four days. He was caught after four days and he's just thinking like, Oh, I think that's a movie except this guy didn't actually know any of these girls. Like he just 
was a psychopath that wanted to kill co-eds, right? And so what if it was someone they knew and all of this? And then that started, that combined with his fandom of horror of the slasher film genre, he decided to merge these two things. And then all of this was sort of whirling around in his head. And finally he had an idea for this story. And I assume that he probably outlined it and then in order to avoid uh, his car being repossessed, he drove to Palm Springs, stayed in Palm Springs for three days, showed up on a Friday, stayed through Sunday. And in that three day weekend, he wrote Scary Movie. Scary Movie was the original title for Scream. And off that script, that first draft of what would become Scream, he sent that to his agent and it created a bidding war between all of the studios who wanted this movie. So that brings us to a couple of other things. So we have to back up a little bit. Now we have to back up and we have to go to Dimension. So Dimension was created, of course, by the Weinsteins. They had created Miramax. Miramax was big on indie films. They made things for cheap. They knew how to market all of these things. They were like Hollywood's new big thing. But they created Miramax and in doing so created Dimension, what was meant to be genre. And they wanted to do genre fair. And so Bob Weinstein is the person who took over Dimension. And so he was focused on all of this. Stuff that wasn't going to win any Oscars, but maybe make a pretty penny. Exactly. And so one of the first things that he really wanted to do, they were basically looking for like a fresh take on horror because horror had been dead. But Bob Weinstein thought like, yeah, it's dead now, but that's just because we've been using the same tropes for so long. Like, there's got to be something new. There's got to be a new, fresh take on this that we can use. Like, look for it. And so he sends his assistant out basically to read every incoming horror script that he could find, right? He ends up finding Scary Movie and sends it to Bob and says, I don't know what you're looking for, but if this isn't it, then... I don't know what to tell you. And so Bob reads scary movie realizes this is exactly what he was looking for. And then uh, does what he can to, to bid on this script. He ends up calling Kevin Williamson. So dimension is not the top payout on this screenplay. Other, other studios would have paid more. Universal was going to pay more. Paramount was going to pay more. Sony was going to pay more, but what Bob offered Kevin Williamson was look, I'm only going to give you $500,000 for the script. People were like, it was, it was in the millions that people were going to buy the spec script. Um, but he was like, I'm only going to give you $500,000, but I'm going to do it with a deal that you're going to produce this movie. And you're going to be on set every day. And it's going to come with uh, a two picture deal outside of screen, outside of this movie, um, a two picture deal, one of which you will direct. So, Kevin Williamson took the deal because all of the other deals were big paychecks, but this was a career. Mm -hmm. Now that br brings us to getting a director attached. And the first person that Bob Weinstein thought of was Wes Craven. He wanted Wes Craven, but when he sent the script to Wes Craven, Wes wasn't interested because he was like, I've done this before. I've done the slasher thing. I've done the horror thing. He felt like he was commenting on things, but no one ever saw his commentary, his, his social satire commentary, because all they saw was the violence. And so when his movies were hits, they would be get 
clones and those clones wouldn't have any of his satire in them. They wouldn't have any of his moral lessons in them. And so they would just be TNA and misogyny everywhere. And he was sick of it. He was like, I feel responsible for the state of horror. I feel like the way that we're treating women in horror movies in the genre is my fault because I didn't do a good enough job with the movies that I was trying to make. And I don't want to be responsible for that again. And so he said, no, he just turned the down, the movie down flat out. So then they went out to other directors. The first director that ever uh, tried to attach themselves to the movie was Oliver Stone. He was the person who was in the deep bidding war against dimension. He wanted to direct this movie and he wanted this script. I cannot even begin to fathom what a, what an Oliver Stone scream movie would be but it sounds insane to me i when did um natural born killers yeah natural born killers come out was it i'm gonna say after this yeah it might have been after this right i was gonna say it would have been a lot of a lot more cuts yeah right yeah natural born killers was 94 okay yeah so that makes sense because that's about when this was a bidding war so yeah it would have been like early mid 90s juliette lewis is sydney prescott yeah so so oliver stone uh ends up losing that out and then isn't interested in working with the weinsteins they went out to other directors. They went out to Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi turned it down. Uh, they went out to George Romero. George Romero turned it down. And in each of these people that they sent it out to, they were all sort of relieved that they turned it down because they wanted Wes Craven. So they sent it out to Wes Craven again. And again, he said no. Uh, the first time that he said no was when during the bidding war. And his production company was thinking about buying it, but then he turned it down. The next time he turned it down was the offer from Dimension. And then something crazy happened. Drew Barrymore read the script and was extremely interested in playing the lead role of Sidney Prescott. And once they got her attached, Wes Craven said, wait, 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 Drew Barrymore wants to be in a horror movie. And as a result of that, he decided, all right, I'll give it another go. Like, there must be something special about this if, if we're going to do that. Yeah, speaking of someone who, who would be interested in putting that genre behind them. Right. The other problem with the other directors as well was that a lot of them saw the script as a comedy. And they're like, oh, okay, so this is a comedy. And Kevin Williamson was like, no, it's not a comedy. Like, there are funny moments. The characters are funny. But the movie is a horror movie. It should be scary. It's a thriller it's a slasher film. It's not a comedy. And no other director saw that. And it wasn't until Wes Craven read it that he was like, so this is really scary. And they were like, okay, yeah, this is the guy. So the, the film ends up shooting from April 15th to June 8th, 1996 on a $15 million budget. They decided to go to the Santa Rosa area because that was the the sort of vibe that they wanted Woodsboro to have is sort of a, you know, like a Napa Valley, you know, wine country kind of look to it. And uh, they ended up settling on Santa Rosa. They made a deal with Santa Rosa High School to shoot there. But then when they got the script, they were told by location scouters, location supervisors, things like that. They were told that the script was a comedy because, again, most people who read this script misread it as a comedy because it was so funny. When they finally got the script and read that it was about kids killing each other in high school, they immediately were like, oh, no, because what happened just the previous year is that uh, a girl named Polly Class was kidnapped from her home at knife point 
during a sleepover and then was later found uh, brutally molested and murdered. Oh, and no. the it was still like a real rough spot for the town. And so there was a town hall meeting about this, people calling the script disgusting that they hadn't read, calling, you know, the, the, the Hollywood disgusting and horror disgusting and that violence begets violence. Little did they know that that's literally part of the story of the movie. But again, a lot of people can't read satire and underlying messages and things. It's difficult for some people to see. And a script isn't a novel. Exactly. A script right. isn't a novel. Totally. So it's missing a lot of context because mm. the context is provided by the director. And and so they uh, they finally voted that uh, they would renege on their deal and not allow them to shoot there. So actually at the end of the movie, at the credit in the credits, there's a there's a final credit at the end of the credits for screen that says and no thanks whatsoever to the Santa Rosa uh, high school like school district. They, and this all happened during production. They were already shooting the movie when they reneged on their deal. And luckily, the town, the school district hated the movie. The town loved that the movie was shooting because it was providing tons of jobs for locals. And and so they were like, yeah, absolutely, you should shoot here. Our community center used to be a high school. You should shoot at our community center. You can make it look like a high school again. It was built to be a high school. And so that's what they did. I have a lot of stuff on like casting and things. I want to get into that when we get into the movie, but I do want to mention that the next big hurdle that the that the movie had was after they production wrapped and they edited the movie, the problem was that Wes Craven, his opinion on violence on film is that you shouldn't sugarcoat it. And that is not something that the MPAA looks kindly on. They want you to sugarcoat the violence because they want it to not be real. They want it to be movie violence. And Wes Craven's opinion is if it's the whole point of the movie is that movie violence does not equal real violence. There's literally a scene in this movie where two kids are stabbing each other thinking it's not going to hurt that bad. And then it hurts like hell because getting stabbed hurts like hell. The whole point of the movie is that real violence is not the same as what you watch in movies. Mm -hmm. And their opinion was, but it's a movie. So their first rating was NC 17 and it was NC 17 due to violence. And they had to cut it back because an NC 17 is a death sentence uh, in the box office, not just because only people 17 and up can see it, uh, 17 and older, that's still most people, right? Most people who are going to see this movie. The problem is that most theaters won't carry an NC-17 movie. Right. And if they don't carry it, you can't see it. And if you can't see it, it can't make any money. So they were required to make a ton of cuts. You know, they tried their best to do the cuts exactly the way they asked. But things like dripping blood had to go. Things like uh, Steve's guts originally fell out of his body. And they had to cut that out. So they're just already hanging there in the shot. You know, there's a there's a reaction when uh, Kenny, the cameraman, gets his throat slit that had to go because it was they're like, he looks like he's in a lot of pain. That's really scary. You should cut that. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I know. So so it's a lot of that. So it was a real uphill battle. I think they ended up sending them something like 40 cuts of this movie before they finally agreed to an R rating. And it was just in the nick of time to get all of their prints sent out to theaters for the December 20th release. Because as I said, production wrapped in on June 6th and the movie opened December 20th. So 
not a big post-production schedule on this movie. And most of it was spent battling the MPAA. But, you know, the movie opened December 20th and uh, the rest is history. So let's talk about the movie, Nick. Yeah, I think we all know how it starts. Yeah. Weirdly, the best scene in the movie but it's still like a perfect movie. Like I can only imagine what it was like watching this in the theaters with no context. Because if I'm not mistaken, in the style of Psycho, was Drew Barrymore not kind of marketed up front as like the lead of the movie? This is a Drew Barrymore movie? Yes. She's on the front of the poster, right? Yeah, yeah. She's on the poster. The poster is like all of the cast faces. A lot of them do not look movie accurate. Because no. it was probably shot like way later or way earlier before they started shooting or like something. That really sexy cast and crew photo of Lord of the Rings that was. <laughs> yes, yes, hundred <laughs> percent. Yes, it's exactly like that. Like uh, people have weird facial hair that they don't have in the movie, stuff like that. But yeah, so the casting of Drew Barrymore, very interesting. So Kevin Williamson always pictured this to be a Janet Lee and Psycho situation. He was like, "This is going to. This will mean everything." If we cast a big name actress in this role and we kill her in the first 13 pages, right? That like no one will know, see that coming. It, it will hook everybody. It'll be amazing. We have to do this. When Drew Barrymore first attached herself to the script, she attached herself as the lead. She's Drew Barrymore. So she, she was like, yeah, I should probably play the lead, right? Of course. So she attached herself as the, as the lead, as Sidney Prescott. At the time, she was like early 20s. Uh, she was like 20, 21, something like that. So very early in her post-adolescent career. And then as they were casting the rest of the roles, they went back to talking about Casey and how do we cast Casey? And so one of the thoughts that they had was, well, who's the biggest actress right now that would be in this kind of movie? And everyone unanimously thought Alicia Silverstone. So they were like, let's get Alicia Silverstone to play Casey. That would be huge. That'd be exactly what we need. So they start to reach out to Alicia Silverstone's people. My understanding is that Alicia Silverstone's manager shares or, or agent shares an agent or manager with Drew Barrymore at this time. So they get wind that they're offering the Casey role to Alicia Silverstone. And rather than reaching out to Alicia Silverstone, they reach out to Drew Barrymore and they're like, hey, are you cool with this? And Drew Barrymore is like, you know what? I'm not cool with it because I want to play that character. It's my favorite character in the script. I, I'm, I'm attached to this because I want to be in this movie and I love this script. And, you know, I'm Drew Barrymore, so... My career tells me that I should be playing the lead, but in reality, I want to play Casey. That's the role that I want to play. So they go out to them and they're like, hey, what would you guys think about Drew Barrymore playing Casey and then recasting the lead? And everyone's like, oh, that's, that's going to be a tough call because Sydney's going to be a really tough character to cast. But yeah, let's do it because no one's going to expect that. So that's how that ended up happening. Um, Alicia Silverstone never got the call and Drew Barrymore... Uh, is now in horror movie infamy as uh, one of the greatest horror movie scenes ever created. Yeah, oh, yeah, and and a and a really really great horror movie performance. And I think it's a performance and a scene that to me immediately sets up the world that this movie lives in. And Absolutely, is, and is creating as you're watching it. This Absolutely. idea that this is a world where every character in the movie has seen every movie you've ever seen, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and talks about it the way you talk about movies with your friends, but also. Drew Barrymore is in these 13 minutes. She she create Casey feels like a real teenager. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. She feels like a real person. Yeah. And her, the way that she like plays with the knife when she's talking about it, about stabbing uh-huh. babysitters, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, watching it this time, it, it drew, I, I, it's a perfect, it's a classic. So you're going to find new stuff every time you watch it. Mm-hmm. But I just really appreciated in a way that I, it was really disturbing and sad how in so many horror movies, especially these kinds of horror movies, we meet these teenagers in very like sexualized, like they're at summer camp or they're at a sorority or they're trying to get laid. Mm-hmm. And this movie immediately kind of settles you and like, no, like these are 16, there's a 17, 18 year old kids. Mm-hmm. And she's just like making popcorn and trying to like live her life. Mm-hmm. And kind of mm-hmm. like the super theme that I thought while watching it, and I couldn't stop thinking about listening to you talking about the origins of these movies mm-hmm. is to me, this movie seems like about men having ownership or taking ownership over women's lives mm-hmm. and bodies and sometimes even their stories. Especially this one. Yes. More than any of the other series. Yeah. This first one is about men invading their lives. Yeah. And it's literally what happened. Like, she's in her home. She's not doing anything. She's just trying to be like, they make her a part of this legend, this story that they want to create, their narrative. Mm-hmm. And it's it's some incredible filmmaking. The way that the camera moves around her house and just slowly lets that dread mount up and up and up as mm-hmm. the kind of battle of wits kind of riddles in the dark mm-hmm. thing is happening. Yeah. It's, it's a classic for a reason. So, so a couple of uh, interesting notes about this scene. So you, you complimented Drew Barrymore's performance and it really is one of the most iconic horror film performances of all time. And it's, and it's crazy to think like I, I was, I was watching this movie and I was just like, I, I, that's Drew Barrymore. Like we know Drew Barrymore. She's in the wedding singer. She's in never been kissed. She's Charlie's, a Charlie's angel. angel. Yeah. She directs, you know, Whip she's, it. yeah, she's Drew Barrymore. She's such a, uh, 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 sort of a staple of like Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And you watch this movie and you, you, you can't help but forget that that's Drew Barrymore. Like that's that Drew Barrymore. She was in scream for 13 minutes. You know, and and turned in one of the greatest performance in any horror film ever. Right. It's nuts. So the way that she got that performance was that Wes Craven is like, okay, I need this to be as naturalistic of a performance because this whole the whole point of this movie is that movie violence does not equal real violence. That's the whole and the movie's not going to work unless we can draw that line. So this needs to be an extremely naturalistic performance. So what makes you horrified? Like what fills you with dread? What fills you with horror? And I want to use that on set so that you can, I can get you to that place quickly, a fit like quickly, efficiently, and we can, you know, get the shots in because this is going to be hard on all of us, but I want to make sure that you're giving the best performance that you can, that you never feel like you're acting. And so Drew tells him this story about this new story that she read. Now, Drew Barrymore, longtime vegan, very much an animal lover. And she read this story about a pet owner who killed their dog by setting it on fire and watching it die. And she told him this story and instantly started crying because she was just so horrified for the pain that this innocent creature went through. And she was like, it's the most horrifying thing that I've ever heard because violence against people is already an awful thing. 
But the fact that this dog didn't do anything to anybody and isn't can't even conceive of having enemies or anything and felt safe with their owner, this owner that they trusted. And then the tr- th- that owner betrayed that trust by setting it on fire just to watch it die. It's wow. one of the most horrifying things I've ever heard. And yeah. so Wes used that on set. And every time they would go, they would need her to get to that place quickly. He would say something like, hey, Drew, I'm setting the match. That would, that's what would bring her to it, like lightning fast. And that's what gave that performance. And it's one of those things where you hear about stuff like this from directors, like directors doing this. But the thing that I like about this story is that, yes, it is horrifying and it sucks that you have to do that to like get your actor to a certain place. But I liked a lot that Wes Craven asked for permission. He got her her okay on this. Well, it's uh, it it, it, it to me it, it speaks of a collaboration, yes, as opposed to uh, like trust. Yeah, collaboration, trust, intimacy. Yeah, not you're my favorite paintbrush, right? Or like I can control your emotions like a string, right? Because I'm an auteur with a scarf around my neck, right? Totally, totally. And so it's it's a really amazing performance that is that is called out of this relationship that these two had because they were the two they were like other than Kevin Williamson and and Bob Weinstein they were the two longest running people attached to this movie and so they they you know she was going to play Sydney for a long time before she she, she switched roles she saw kind of the potential of this story and this project before yeah a lot of other people whose job it is is to pick good movies to make right and she knew that this whole movie hinged on this scene and it needed to be good and so she had to put her trust in Wes Craven that he was going to pull the best performance out of her and holy moly did he ever yeah it's mm-hmm. heartbreaking every time the parents as well get yes hello hello performances oh man so good yeah so this was shot over five days the first thing that they shot they shot for five days and turned into one of the most iconic horror scenes of all time it's just insane to me but Daly started coming in and the Weinsteins didn't get it. He was seeing dailies and he was like, this sucks. This is going to be terrible. Like you, you guys, like he's butchering the script. Like the script was good, but this is bad. This is going to suck. What, like, what are you guys doing? So Wes Craven was like, Rutro, they're not, they're not getting my dailies. Like they're not understanding what this is yet. So Wes Craven got together with his longtime editor, Patrick Lussier, and they cut together the first 13 minutes and sent them, sent the cut off to the Weinsteins. And they were like, oh, holy shit, this is going to be brilliant. Do you guys need any more money? Do you need any more time? What do you need? Everything changed for them. And so now they were bending over backwards to do whatever they needed to get the, the story done. So they just couldn't see the big picture with only watching the dailies? I guess so. And I don't know what the what the problem with the dailies themselves were, but they, but it was missing like some of that nuance or, or, the, whole or the pacing. Mo- the whole movie is such a magic trick because yeah. it, it is this sobering, really like violent thriller and it is all and it also lives in like fun Dawson's Creek hangout ratatat mode right mm-hmm. and it it lives in both of those things so fully uh, it's a well, weird movie without I'm, the context of this being like one of the greatest horror movies ever made that's very true i mean the thing that sucks about it though is just like you guys are producers you don't know how dailies work. Like, you don't know yeah. that that's not the movie. Like, the movie happens in the edit. I don't know. For sure. So they're still assholes. <laughs> um, <laughs> trust, listener. They're still assholes. <laughs> um, I think my favorite moment in 
that whole segment with uh with Casey and her boyfriend and uh Ghostface. So early on she lies about not having a boyfriend. Then there's the moment where she's threatened and now she's like, Well, my boyfriend's coming over and you know Ghostface says, Well, you don't you said you didn't have a boyfriend mm-hmm. and he's like, his name wouldn't be Steve, would it? And then how did you know that? If you've ever talked to a teenager and called them out on a lie and just heard their voice and her her voice breaks when she mm-hmm. says how do you know his name yeah between that and also the the, the her line read on he's big and he plays football and he'll kick the shit out of you yeah it's god that performance is so powerful yeah and it's so strong and it, it goes from that that big loud moment where she's screaming at him then going how do you know his name is so perfect yeah and I, I, I love it. Yeah, the slow burn of like just how screwed this person is. Yeah, yeah. Like, the degree to which this person has planned this out is, I think, like what the kind of the why what makes this scary. Yeah, more than like the typical slasher stuff. Yeah, couple of other other small things that I probably should bring up. Well, one major thing and one small thing I should bring up before we move on to to Sydney. The first scene of the movie. Yeah, to Sydney. <laughs> We're introduced to, of course. The voice, you know, Ghostface. It's 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 the iconic scream voice, Roger Jackson. Yeah, Roger Jackson, big time voiceover artist, uh, has done tons and tons of cartoons and things, but he's known for two things primarily. He is known for the the voice of Ghostface, and of course, Mojo Jojo from the Powerpuff Girls. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, that's the two things that he's most known for. And he hadn't done that yet. He do hadn't think, done like, Mojo Jojo. Do you think anyone's yet. ever like gone to him at a con, like at a Q and A and like made him do like the scream calls as Mojo Jojo? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I bet. That's pretty good. Oh, I'd pay to hear that. I would love that. But yeah, Roger Jackson, he was unseen by everyone in the movie. No one knew who he was. No one knew what he looked like. And everyone who is talking to him on the phone is actually talking to him in a tent on a cell phone away from the rest of the actors playing the role of the voice of Ghostface. Roger Jackson also does an incredible performance of deciding he worked with Kevin Williamson to figure out which lines of dialogue Stu was saying versus Billy. And he had different intonations to his voice depending on who was talking because he needed to know he needed to differentiate. There are times where they're both talking and and his his voice will be up here and then down here. And that'll be the difference between, you know, Stu and Billy. And it's really, really interesting yeah. to go back and try to figure out who's talking when. And it's great. I think I think one of my favorite things about Ghostface, and it's all over that first scene, is he's able to go between that like charming male kind of like smooth voice and like brutal and even his language changes mm-hmm. where he stops the, the, the facade kind of goes up and you see the you hear the wolf. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's an amazing performance every time. Mm-hmm. He's good in every single movie. Like really, he's so good. The the other the other small thing that I just wanted to mention, the trivia question that kills Steve. Who was the killer in Friday the 13th? One of Kevin Williamson's side gigs where he was just trying to pick up money everywhere anywhere he could was doing quiz night at a pub. And the rule of the house is if the quiz master can stump 
everyone in the room on a question, they get a free drink. And he got a free drink every time he asked that question. And so that's why he used that question in the movie. Because at the time, you know, these pop culture things weren't, they weren't readily available for everyone. And so the idea of who's the killer in Friday the 13th, it's Jason. Duh. It's the guy with the hockey mask. Right. Mm-hmm. You but, couldn't read the Wikipedia article about the entire franchise while you were supposed to be like paying attention at work. Right. Absolutely. Or going to sleep. <laughs> yeah. And so and so he was like, that's the perfect question. The question that stumped uh, everyone at, at, at quiz night. That's the question I'll use uh, to kill Steve. Poor Steve. <laughs> oh. All right. Let's talk about Sydney. The second scene of the movie. Everybody. Yes. Here we go. Uh, yeah. So uh, we meet. Skeetle, I can't stop just thinking Skeetle Rich, but yeah. uh, he he comes in through the window. Billy Loomis. Billy Loomis himself. He says that uh, he was watching The Exorcist and it made, made him think about Sydney mm-hmm. because it was edited for television and that's where their relationship's at. Ever since your mom was killed, <laughs> Sydney, <laughs> I found you a little, a little bit un, unavailable for me and my needs. To be fair to Billy Loomis... Mm-hmm. He is a psychopath. Sure. So oh, okay. I was like, are we really going to be fair to Billy? Lewis? No, no. I mean, well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying he's not just a normal piece of shit. He's like, he's like all caps lock piece of shit. <laughs> so and, uh, and yeah, I, I, immediately this being like our introduction to Sidney Prescott, mm-hmm. one of my favorite horror protagonists. Yes. What, what's so great about Sidney and what's so great about Nev Campbell's performance there's just something there's like a, a dimension to her that's immediately apparent. There's like an intelligence and a presence there that's like, oh, this is a real person that had a life going on before the movie started. And this is just like where the viewer is being dropped in. Yeah. Whereas in countless movies like this one, like this, these characters seem to have no life and have no dimensionality mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. They did not start existing until just now. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it, I found myself thinking a lot about Cabin in the Woods as well, which is like another horror movie that calls out these tropes. And like one of those tropes is like they literally have to dumb down the people that they're sacrificing because mm-hmm. like they're too smart. And this movie doesn't give itself that hobble. It lets the characters be as intelligent as they are. We meet Sydney's dad. Sydney's dad's going on a quote business trip. Mm-hmm. He's going to be staying at a hotel. Don't worry about it. I'll be <laughs> fine. And then Sydney like flashes Billy Loomis to be like, How's this for PG 13? And he's like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everyone thought that Wes Craven uh, cast Skeet Ulrich because he kind of looks like. Young Johnny, Johnny Depp. Depp. Yeah. yeah, young Johnny Depp. Then just Johnny Depp. Right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but that wasn't the case. Uh, he was just, he he found that he was able to ride the line between charming and psychotic really well. And so, you know, you got to keep people guessing with Billy through this movie about his motives. And like the way this movie handles Billy, we'll talk about it, mm-hmm. is really, it's a master class in knowing exactly or guessing when your audience is going to be what they're going to be thinking and when. Yeah. And then challenging that. Yeah. And I can't wait to talk about it. And also everything I said about Nev Campbell as Sid, I also, I think Skeet Ulrich is delivering a really, really great performance as Billy Loomis. And there's a reason that this guy is like equally beloved and reviled by horror fans because like there is that charm. There is that sexiness where like every time you watch the movie, you like kind of want him to like be the good boyfriend that he seems to be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the normal shitty boyfriend. Right. Yeah, of course. Because <laughs> the first movie, you're like, this guy, this guy sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah uh, speaking of nev campbell the only thing that she had done she had she had filmed the craft it would come out 
by the time the movie started shooting, but by the time Scream started shooting, but uh, it hadn't when they cast her. She had just done Party of Five, The Craft, and that's kind of it. But they had talked to a lot of other actresses, Alicia Witt, Reese Witherspoon, a few others about taking this part. But ultimately, the thing that they liked about Nev Campbell was the the way that she could feel both vulnerable and strong sometimes mm-hmm. simultaneously. And they're, they were like, I don't know how she does that, but it's exactly what we need for this role. Because she's a character who's gone through something. And it happened a year ago, but it's a horrifying thing for any kid to go through, the murder of their mom. Yeah, she isn't mm-hmm. quite Heather Lankencap in Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. She hasn't, she's already been, she's, she's surviving and recovering from a trauma already. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a tricky thing to do as an actress. I that vul- vulnerability and strength really comes through in the line where she says, uh, she says to Billy, you know, your, your mom went away. She's not lying in a, in a graveyard somewhere. Her bringing up her own trauma while also like defending herself, you know, being mm-hmm. you know being vulnerable in that trauma while still defending herself is real good. It's, Absolutely, it's great. Yeah, it reminds me of like people that I knew that like, oh, they've already dealt with stuff that I haven't, and I'm just a dumb kid. Yeah, and like <laughs> she's already like a, a, a she comes off a very adult already in moments in the way that like she knows more about the world mm-hmm. uh, than her peers, and she goes to school, and the media machine is already there, mm-hmm. lying in wait, reporting on the murder of Casey. And Matt, what was his name? Steve. Steve. Uh, what, what's interesting, though, about that opening scene, and I'm just, you know, thinking about it structurally. I, I, I think about this script and, and the fact that he wrote it in three days and how furious I am that anyone, any human being could write something this good in three days. But uh, <laughs> the fact that, like, you you do the Drew Barrymore scene and then the next scene you get is this Sydney and Billy scene. And you're like, oh, we're introducing these new characters. And it is doing all of that. But it's also billy providing himself an alibi right you know and and so it's it's already working on multiple levels this script if you're watching the tape again yeah you're, you're already picking up and being rewarded for for watching this again exactly and the script does this really neat thing where you know you have this cold open of of the drew barrymore stuff and then you get into the movie proper and it follows this really interesting structure of learning about sydney's present learning about her past and then the future begins when we go to the party later. And I think that that's a really interesting structure in terms of like revealing character and how that works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they go to the high school mm-hmm. and uh, they're reporting on the murders of the students is Gail Weathers. Yes. Courtney Cox, who wanted this part so freaking bad that she went to the producers. She went to the to, went to the Weinsteins and to Wes Craven and basically had to convince them that she could be a bitch because she was on friends and you know her role, her character on friends is not that it's the opposite of that she's very cuddly and goofy and silly um neurotic and, neurotic and uptight you know and just a very different vibe you know a monica uh, a total monica uh, her character <laughs> on friends is a total monica <laughs> and, and so she had to go to them and convince them that she could be a bitch and when she did that they were like well I mean, she's kind of a huge star, so we should definitely cast her in this. And A huge star that lives all the way through. Yes. And so she got paid, I think, a pretty low salary considering her worth. I think they used her desire to be in the movie against her paycheck, as Hollywood tends to do. Pretty, pretty gross practice, if you ask me. But she ended up in the movie and is one of horror's most uh, yeah. iconic characters, it, you know? 
she is so perfect in this role and it's fun to see her her arc just not not just in this movie but you know the series as a whole is yeah. so good yeah so much fun yeah. to watch i love gail weathers and i think she's a character that is so emblematic of 1996 mm-hmm. and where we are in the I, I found myself thinking a lot about like yeah we're only a couple of years away from like tanya harding and nancy kerrigan or oj simpson this like rise of this bowless like endless media news consumption that uses real tragedy and real trauma and like gobbles it up and turns it into content yeah that we were just starting to see the age of and gail is that at first and the fact of the movie then you love her mm-hmm. immediately you're like there's something about this character i really like yeah she is that but like weirdly not in a trashy way she is very adamant to do these things and she wants to be a pulitzer prize winning journalist but she wants to be a journalist she wants to get to the truth regardless of what the truth is even if it's ugly that's what she wants and then you have juxtaposed you have uh the character played by linda blair who is just like how does it feel you know like (laughs) the people have a right to know and it's just like oh that's that's a trashy journalist you know and what was really interesting is we meet Gail, who's like two teens who were brutally murdered. And we're like, oh, that's ugly because like I saw it happen and those were people. And then we cut to Sydney, who meets her friend Tatum, played by Rose McGowan, who is also like, uh, did you hear? Like she got totally st- ripped apart from her blood all over the. Yeah, and I loved it because like what Kevin Williamson in this movie realized is that like kids, they, they don't have empathy yet. Mm-hmm. No, they don't react to tragedy and violence the way that we're, we quote think that they should. And I think we kind of, I myself have been guilty of like belly aching about like the state of the youth today and like, ah, oh, the phones, the internet is making us, it's killing our empathy. And then I watch scream and I'm like, no, of course, like, no, it was always like this. Yeah. And I, <laughs> scream gets that. And the teenagers, every teenager in this movie is like a little bastard in yeah. some way. Yeah. Honestly though, if I'm being honest, I think that kids have more empathy today than they ever have. I kind of feel that way too. Yeah. I I, I think the internet, I think the the this connected world that we have, it can it can go either direction, but I've seen so many kids who really have an understanding of how other people feel. They are much more respectful of people's feelings. I, I think it's gotten better. I really do. Unless we're talking about like the kids on the other end of the spectrum who are just like bullying kids behind their phones. Right. I, I think as a whole, kids are much more empathetic today than they were back in 1996. Yeah, yeah, because like they were kind of they were just getting dropped into this world of like 24 hour, like knowing everything about Tanya Harding and Nancy or like Maureen Prescott mm-hmm. in this movie. And I think it's important to note that that's the thing that makes Sydney stand out is that she does have the empathy because she Be- knows she she learned it through her trauma that she experienced yeah. the year before maureen prescott isn't like a cool town urban legend like it is to everyone else it's her mom right right uh-huh. exactly sydney is brought into the principal's office played by none other than fonzie himself henry winkler yeah there's that great scene right before that where she's in class and just staring at the spot where casey used to sit mm-hmm. where because she mentions earlier she sat right next to me in english class and yeah. then we get to see that empty spot i want that every time i want like one scene where we get to see like where casey was and the like the chemistry of everyone else in the yeah school, you know? yeah because it because that's that's ah uh, like that, <laughs> that's what makes this movie so special is that it isn't about the killers. It's about the victims mm-hmm. and it's about how that translates to everyone else. And I mean, granted the other, the sequels do that in a variety of ways, both good and bad across the board. But the thing that this gets right is that Casey 
leaves an empty hole in this school and they show that hole. It's like mm. she is gone. Someone took her. And now her seat yeah. is empty in and, English class. And like the movie doesn't let us be like Tatum or Stu mm-hmm. or Randy because they, they made us watch that murder happen. Right. Yeah. It was slow and agonizing. We watched her get stabbed in the heart in real time. Like it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. And and the movie doesn't lean away from that. And that's what I love about it because that's I wish more movies did this yeah. instead of be so playful with the violence, you know? But then also mm. be playful enough to cast Henry Winkler, the Bond, as a principal. So, so the thing that's interesting about that, I have a two-part story. The second half of this, I will tell in the next Henry Winkler scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this particular one, I will just mention that Henry Winkler shared an agent with Wes Craven and wanted to be in a Wes Craven movie. He thought it would be fun. He just wanted to be in a horror movie. I just think it'd be neat. Yeah. I mean, literally, that's what it was. He was just like, I just think it would be fun. So they had this principal character and they put him here and they thought, oh, this will be a really great use of Henry Winkler because there's that moment because this whole movie, you forget now that you like know who the killers are after you've seen the movie a million times, you forget that this movie is full of red herrings like Mm -hmm. loaded to the gills with red herrings and the principal in a lot of ways is the first red herring because he does that weird thing where he's he touches sid's face and is like are you are you okay and just touches her a little too intimately and you realize that they're setting up a red herring of like oh did he kill casey because like He's like a gross principal who has a thing for students or. Yeah. And also in the principal's office is uh, Deputy Dewey Woodsboro's Finest, mm-hmm. played by David Arquette. Who were introduced to as a real cop and then later get introduced as more of a Barney Fife. It, he, <laughs> he, he, he constantly waffles back and forth between like, like scene to scene, which I actually love because it just shows that he has. There's like multiple sides to him. Like he can be a cop, right? He can be. Very professional and, you know, do his job. But then also he can get degraded by his sister and feel real bad about himself. Yeah, it's all about, you know, who he's around in that moment. Yes. Like who, yeah, like the it's power either, dynamic. Yeah, exactly. It's either him with his sister or him with the chief, you know, and it's such a good way to play that character. I've never thought about that, Brian, but you're right. Like, that's very true of people is like because then you see him later on with Gail. And you get what Gail sees in Dewey. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, Gail doesn't see the same Dewey that Tatum does. Mm-hmm. But like a surprising amount of stories don't show that, that, you know, people can have different dimensions to them. No pun intended. Yeah. Pictures. So David Arquette was actually up for he auditioned for both Stu and for Billy. In, in both cases, he was not right for the role and he felt it. And when he went into his second audition, I think for Stu, because I think they were auditioning for Billy first and then for Stu. And in the Stu audition, he was like, hey, um, I really appreciate you guys calling me back and, you know, you know, coming in for, for this character. But if I'm being really honest, can I read for Dewey? Because I that's the character that I love the most in the script and the one that I see myself playing the most. And they were like, oh. Uh, sure. Because in the script, Dewey is kind of a nothing character. A lot of what becomes Dewey was added after David Arquette and Kevin Williamson talked about the character and what David Arquette wanted to do with the character. And then this sort of Barney Fife thing kind of came out of that. And so, yeah, that's that's how he got that role is he was just like he really embraced this character and saw something fun in it and interesting in it and human in it. 
that no one making the movie even really saw. He was just going to be kind of a generic big brother cop character. And David Arquette turned him into what he became. Yeah. A really another unforgettable horror character. Yes. And I don't know. It's interesting that in a world, in a movie universe where so many, where most men are like serial killers or even like the principal, like kind of creepy and sketchy or Mm -hmm. untrustworthy, like Dewey kind of stands as this really interesting as like the male protagonist of the series of the series. Yeah. Like you say, he can be goofy and like Barney Fifish, but then also like you can count on him. You're like, oh, Dewey's here. Like, he's, every- <laughs> he, he's, he's, uh, he's just, he's so earnest. Yeah. Like he mm-hmm. wears his heart on his sleeve. He's so incredibly earnest. And I think that, I think Dewey Riley is probably my favorite character in any horror movie. Oh, wow. And I think it all comes to, it all comes from that earnestness because you don't see a lot of earnest characters in horror and he stands out in a Kevin Williamson script because Kevin Williamson characters don't tend to be very earnest, you know, Dawson Leary, notwithstanding a lot of them are very ironic and, you know, talking about murder, like it's nothing. And he always takes it very seriously, very seriously. And we'll get to talk about that a lot more in scream Two, where he's just at my favorite point as a character is in scream Two, but prime but, prime dewey absolutely prime dewey <laughs> but but i do i do love his origin here i i think he's i think dewey as a character and david arquette's performance is just unbelievably incredible just so much heart you know yeah, yeah. uh opposite speaking of right afterwards you get one of my favorite scenes in the movie uh the fountain lunch scene yes where we meet Stu, played by matthew lillard for the first time who is dating tatum Right? Yes. They're like officially dating. Yes. Right? yes. Okay. Yes. I love this scene. I've always loved it. At the time for me, it was like a really surprising scene for a horror movie because like I could feel the chemistry between the leads. Mm-hmm. They feel like teenagers hanging out in April. Like, the way they're all like kind of hanging on, hanging all over each other, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I, I love Matthew Lillard is it just taps into that late 90s chaotic boyfriend energy so matthew lillard yeah uh (laughs) this is interesting so so uh matthew lillard did not audition for this movie he was dating someone who was auditioning for another movie in the same building and he was an actor like he had been in hackers at this point the planet and so he was an actor but he wasn't he didn't get like an invite to like audition for this he was waiting for his girlfriend and the casting director saw him and they were having so much trouble finding Stu because Stu had to be both dorky and like jockish. Like you had to believe that he could be dorky and preppy simultaneously. And they're like, I don't even know what that means. Like, what does that even look like? Cause the, the, the way he's described in the script is he's a lot like Billy, but he's not Billy. Like that's kind of what it is. It's like it's like a guy who is like constantly chasing Billy, like chasing that vibe. And we all know those people he in high like school. A real kid. Yeah, we all know yeah. that guy in high school. The guy who is like that is the coolest guy. I'm gonna be his best friend, and I'm gonna be just like him, only not quite as good. You know, like that. I'm a little. I'm a little weirder than him. Yeah, my sense of I'm a little too goofy. Yeah. But like, yeah, I mean, you remember every single one of Stu's lines in this movie. Yeah. And the thing that's really fun about about Stu is that Stu as a character in the script was very generic. Kevin Williamson has said that it's the most underwritten character he's ever written in a script. He is ashamed of this character in the script. And then Matthew Lillard showed up 
and riffed like 80% of his lines in this, in this movie. And it was just because he would take, he would read the line that was the Kevin Williamson line. And then he would tweak it and he would stewify it basically and do some weird stuff with it because like, he was like, yeah, whatever. I'll audition for this thing. You asked me to come audition. I'll do it. So he would read the line, but he wouldn't read the line. He would do it in a weird way. He would put a weird inflection on it and just be like really weird because he was like, I have no stakes in this. I didn't, wasn't even invited to audition. So I'm just going to whatever. Sure. And he did it. And they were like, that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. You're hired. And so he got the role. You can see his just like manic energy through this whole movie. And like he watches it now, I guess he just did a talk with Kevin Williamson, I think last year or the year before. And they just talked about this and they talked about, um, Stu and his manic energy and he watches it and through a lot of it, he cringes, but he's like, I don't know that I'm cringing at my performance and the wacky shit that Wes Craven let me do with this character. Or am I just cringing at like the memory of what the nineties were like and how we all acted real weird and manic like that. I hope he doesn't feel that way about his performance because he is my favorite horror movie character. <laughs> he's great. He is like every time I watch this movie, I think he deserves an Oscar, like just in his own category. Yeah. Like, like I, he is just so freaking good, man. It, it's an amazing performance. It really is. Um, And, and that's the thing. It's like 90% performance. That's, yeah. that's the thing that's so impressive about it. Cause it just, it was not on the page at all. Yeah. Yeah. And they, uh, this group feels like a real group of friends. Yeah. Like they have like a chemistry and a hierarchy that feels lived in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So city gets some alone time, uh, doesn't get it for very long. So what I really enjoyed about this, the camera follows Sydney around mm -hmm. exactly like it does Casey mm -hmm. where it's starting to linger and turn. So, so, and there's no like cue, there's no sound cue or music cue, but even subconsciously, maybe without even noticing it, the audience is locking back into scary mode. Yeah. Because uh -huh. the movies start, it's like the shark is awake. Yeah. There's one shot in particular where she's walking up the stairs outside and then hears some dogs barking in the background and then like gets this nervous look, walks back in her patio door, glass patio door, shuts it and locks it. And that shot is exactly the same as the, the one in uh, the opening with, with oh, cool. Casey, where she like, looks out her window and then like locks the window, like looks out the patio door and locks the patio door, the glass patio door. Um, very, very similar shot. And that's on purpose for the exact reasons that you're, you're talking about Nick. It's right. verbatim. What Wes Craven said in the, in oh, the cool. commentary. Yeah. Uh, she sits down, starts to watch TV and it's like local cable news. And that's how the audience learns about Maureen Prescott. Mm -hmm. Gail Weathers is like, Oh, she was raped and murdered a year ago. I wrote it down where it's another time where like her story isn't being told by her. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's become a part of this like ugly, like media narrative that Gail is a part of selling. And she's like, I don't like that Gail Weathers. Gail it, Weathers sucks. Is this the first time that we see Liev Shriver? I think that's later. Okay. That yeah, is yeah. later. Okay. okay. Yeah, all right. Cool. I couldn't remember <laughs> if he was in two news things or, or they're, just the one. They're really good at spacing it out. Okay. Okay. Cool. 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 All right. We'll get to him later then. Yeah, she gets a call from what she... Oh, she gets a call from Tatum. Uh, Tatum is like, hey, I'm at Blockbuster. I'm thinking about getting all the right moves so we can see Tom Cruise's wang. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we get... I, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool as a fan. First contact with Ghostface and Sydney. Yeah, that's the, true. And what's so cool is like the audience is a half step ahead because mm -hmm. they know what this... They know what Hello, Sydney. 
Yeah. She's still like, who's this voice? Like, oh, it's Randy. But the audience is like, no, it's not. Well, what's it really, could be. I don't know yet. What's really interesting, too, is the, the Hello, Sydney is fascinating because it's just like that is that is an iconic line mm-hmm. in like in like the this franchise hello sydney like with the ghost face mm-hmm. that's the first time it happens is right there and she has no idea what she's listening to she thinks she's talking to randy it's great i love that yeah it's so understated and like yeah and then we get their first chase around the house mm-hmm. and Ghostface's movement is very scary because mm-hmm. he's very clearly not jason not freddy he's like a dude just running yeah. And you can outmaneuver him and you can stop him. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it's it's a human. It's like the most dangerous thing that y- you can be hunted by. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and she she points out, he says, what's your favorite scary movie? And she's like, I don't have one. I don't like them. I think they're stupid. And just goes through this list of reasons that she hates them. One of which being these big breasted women who can't act, who run up the stairs instead of going out the front door. It's insulting. And then she has to do the same thing. Like later when Ghostface attacks, she ends up having to run up the stairs instead of going out the front door. And I love that. I love that he's both pointing out the trope and then using the trope to subvert itself. Like that's so cool. Having your cake and eating it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, She dials 911 on her computer. Yeah. Which, uh, that always confuses me. No, that was a thing. Yeah. No, I, I believe you, but yeah. How, uh, yeah. So what would you do? Would you Could you just have it, to go on a website or something? Yeah, yeah. It would be like uh, like AOL Messenger thing. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, like uh, 911 operators um, also had like uh, a setting with like, yeah, internet. Because mm-hmm. internet was like a big deal. And then uh, I, I love this. Uh, Billy comes in, right? Mm-hmm. Ghostface is gone. Billy comes in. And then just as the audience is like, it's Billy, isn't it? They gets interrupted again. With the with the, the phone drop? Yeah. And like yeah. Don't the, and then the, and then the cops come. Yeah. Yeah. The movie knows that you're with you're locked in, you're with Sydney. And so like of course you would be like, Well, he's the killer. Right. But you don't get to live with that for very long because something else happens. Right. The reveal of the ghost face mask that Deputy Dewey Riley is holding in front of the door and screams. Probably a good time to talk about mm-hmm. the costume. You know, in the script it refers to it as like a uh, ghost mask killer or whatever. And so they were like, I don't know what that looks like. And Kevin Williams is like, great question. I left it open for the director's interpretation. And they were like, okay, great. We have no idea what this is going to be. And so they worked with sculptors and they went through sketches and they went through all these things and everything that they came up with Wes Craven didn't like. And it wasn't until they were scouting for locations and they scouted a a house that was featured in shadow of a doubt, 1943 shadow of a doubt. And this woman was living in this house. Her kids had moved out, but she had left their rooms the way that they were. And as they were scouting, they were walking around and they went into one of the kids rooms and on the banister of, of their bed, um, like on their bed frame or, or what have you was this mask. And it was the ghost face mask. And they were like, oh, my God, what is that? Like, Wes was like, that's that's it. That's the mask. That's got to be it. And so they were like, "Okay, great. We're not going to use that one because, you know, we don't want to deal with whatever legality would be required in getting that exact mask. But we'll rip it off. And so they start doing sketches where they're ripping off the ghost face mask and everything is bad. Everything sucks. And it just doesn't. It's missing the combination of terror and sorrow that the ghost face uh-huh. mask has because it's like it's got these sad eyes and it's like it's scary but it's sad and he's like that's it has to be that that's the that's the mask and so eventually 
they figure out who owns it and they license it and it's a big deal. And so it, it really worked out. But that was that. In terms of the rest of the costume, though, originally the thought was, well, it's a ghost, so it should be all white. And they did the first costume test and they're like, oh, all white means that this is a KKK. Oh, member. no. We can't do that. <laughs> like it was just instantly like brought that to the attention. They're like, that's not what this needs to be. And so they decided to switch it to black. And they came up with the cloak because the cloak is great because it hides the form of whoever is the killer. And so therefore hides the identity of the killer. Same thing with the deciding on the the gloves and the black, dark black jeans and the boots. And the boots were in particularly used because they could put them on every red herring because lots of people own boots like that. And so you could put, especially in the nineties. And so you can put those boots on lots of people and it works as like a really good solid red herring. So that's how, that's how the ghost face uh, costume came about. Yeah. Oh, this is also the scene where we learned that Tatum is, or Tatum is Dewey's sister. Gail arrives with Kenny in the van, just a second too late. And uh, Sydney goes down to the station where she learns that her dad is missing. Yeah. Yeah, he never arrived at his hotel. Yeah, and Billy's being held for questioning. He has an alibi. His dad comes, but uh, yeah, they're like they're holding on to him, and he's like, "Sydney, tell him what you're doing, Sydney." And he's like, "It's not my job, dude. What are you doing with a cellular <laughs> telephone, son? Everyone's got him, sheriff." I just want to show that one scene to my students and be like, "There was a time where having a cell phone when you were a teenager was a little odd, you know. <laughs> People yeah. would question you if you had a cell phone. Like, why do you yeah. need that?" <laughs> he, then Gail goes to the station. Yeah. This is where we, is this, is this the first Gail Dewey meeting? Yes, because he refers to the eye. How's the eye doing? Then the second time that they talk. Right, um, right, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So this is when that happens. Yeah. Dewey tells the sheriff like, Hey, these costumes are like everywhere. You can just buy them at a store. Every five and dime in the state. <laughs> yeah. And the sheriff's like, well, <laughs> shit. I like, I like the sheriff this, this watch through. I'm surprised he doesn't die. Mm-hmm. He's got prime dies in a slasher movie for sure. energy. For sure. I, I think they were do not doing it because they were leaving him open as one of the red herrings. Oh, cool. That's because um, that's cool. there's that scene where he like stabs out his cigarette and he's got the boots. <laughs> that's that's the way that oh, is in the movie. Okay. Yep. See, that's what I'm talking about with the red herrings. It's like you don't see them anymore because you know who the killers are. Yeah, but look, yeah, that's not why you're watching it. Yeah. They they also hardcore uh, uh, set up Dewey as the possible killer as well. But that's we'll cool. get there. there. The sheriff has that great line about how, like, Dewey's like, you really think that could happen, Sheriff? Like, kids would just murder people? And he's like, kids today? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is 1996. Anything's possible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they they try to lead Sid out through the back. Gail knows what's up. She This isn't her first ambulance. The janitor is your superior. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, they that iconic first confrontation between Gail and Sydney, where Gail's like, I'll send you a copy. And then boom. Yeah. Bitch goes down. Bam, yes, exactly. Sid, super bitch. So <laughs> so that that scene is the is uh according to Kevin Williamson's agent, is the reason that there was a bidding war on this script. Oh, really? And it's because everyone in movies hates the press and they loved <laughs> that the reporter gets punched in the face. Yeah. <laughs> so does Tatum. Yeah. Yeah. The weird thing about Tatum's room, why does she have two beds? Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, so my sister in that time period had a day bed. She had a bed 
and then she also had a uh, day bed that was like off to the side that she would like kind of sit on as a couch, mm. uh, but then could be used for like sleepovers and whatnot. And then also had a trundle bed underneath that one. Oh wow! Okay. So she had like a three bed bedroom. Prime yeah. sleepover. She also had like the biggest bedroom in the house, and it, I always hated it. <laughs> she had that. Yeah. I guess while we're here, uh, yeah, I really, really like Rose McGowan's Tatum. Yeah, I think the thing that makes her special is like she feels like she's all talk. Like in the way that a lot of girls like her were in high school, where it's just like, yeah, like I like to talk about sex and act like an adult. But then like as soon as you see her in her element at home, she's got a stuffed animal and she is dressed like a little girl, you know, because she's a teenage girl. Mm -hmm. Teenagers, they like to act like they're older than they really are. And it really puts into perspective who Tatum is. And she's just a girl. She's a little girl. Like they're, they're closer to childhood. Like it's Absolutely. it's not it's not a distant memory to them yet. Right, right, right. Being and, like, yeah, yeah, and it just makes it all the more tragic what happens to all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah Tatum's a great best friend. I just mm-hmm. I really like her scenes with Sydney. It feels like a real friendship. Mm-hmm. I like that the movie takes the time to really plant those seeds and just make that relationship feel real again, kind of to make it all the more effective later on in the movie. She's so supportive. Yeah, she's just a great. I don't <laughs> want to say sidekick, but like just a great supporting character. Yeah. For sure. Uh, this is also where we get our first red herring for um, uh, for Dewey. Oh, yeah. Where, uh, yeah, where she gets the phone call at the sleepover and she goes out there and, and you know, Ghostface is talking to her and then, uh, you know, hangs up on her. And then as soon as he hangs up, they're calling for Dewey, but it's not until Ghostface hangs up that Dewey comes out of his got room. It, so it. that's like the first time that they're like trying to set it up that maybe he's the one. Love it. Uh, the next morning. Uh, Sydney's having breakfast with Dewey and Tatum, and that's when they're watching the news and we meet Cotton Weary. Yes. So I could not find anywhere <laughs> why uh, why Liev Shriver agreed to do this role in this movie, because he was acting. I mean, he he had like credits before this, like where he got to say words and not just be on a news on a newscast. And I don't know that he had any hint of what was to come right he didn't know that this was going to turn into a real role right and so i don't i i don't know why they cast him in this or right. how they cast him in this like was he like did he golf with wes craven or was he no idea yeah. no idea couldn't find anything it was infuriating it was the yeah. one detail that i wanted to know about and i could i couldn't find it anywhere i think this is also something that it it's easy to take for granted now in 2021 but Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson's use of media as a story delivery service. Yeah. Of like, we live in this world now where news is everywhere. It's on the TV that you can just turn it on and learn about it and not have like awkward horror movie exposition. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. this is when we learned that Billy's phones are clean. He didn't make the calls. Yep. Also, uh, this is where Sydney confronts Gail at the school. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good scene. I think. Yeah, what yeah. I really liked about that scene is you start that scene, oh, here comes Sydney, like sticking it to Gail yeah. again. And what you mentioned earlier, Scott, this is the scene where I where you learned that Gail isn't just an ambulance chaser. Right. She has right. like she has like real substantial proof. She has like reason like I don't think Cotton did this. I think you picked the wrong guy mm-hmm. because of this, uh-huh. because of this. I've been thinking about this for a year. Yeah. And it's the first if you're watching this movie for the first time, it's like, oh, Gail isn't just going to be a foil or a villain for Sydney potentially. Right. Right. You want to imagine that your mother was just a victim. Therefore it's like an e- nice and easy, clean thing to say that the person that like that she never cheated on any, on your dad and that 
the the person that slept with her is also the person that killed her and like you know probably raped her and that's a nice easy narrative for you to believe but the fact is just because you want to believe that about your mom doesn't make it true and like your mom is a human being and i can recognize that even if you can't you know and it's it's good it's really good and is cotton's life worth you needing the story to be true yes exactly Mm -hmm. you needing to to feel like your your mother you know died this sort of perfect angel like that it's just not true that's not true of any human being you know and and i love that about gail i think i think she's oh god she's such a great character Mm -hmm. i have questions about the timeline here so it's been a year since maureen was murdered yes so in a year they were able to prosecute and she's written a book in in this time all as well it hasn't come out yet okay it hasn't come out yet i just i, I feel like that's a little too fast but you know I, i'll let it go <laughs> i guess that kind of adds to gail's reputation of, right of like uh, she really whipped that thing out she like she does yeah <laughs> and and also like she didn't do the work yeah was like was like writing it as she was going and like yeah it, it's it's it do- definitely adds to it the thing that that is questionable is is him being prosecuted and getting a death sentence yeah yeah that that is in a year that's that's fast that's real fast that's very swift uh sydney leaves kind of rattled uh we get a great scene where courtney cox turns to kenny and she's like an innocent man on death row a killer still on the loose like tell me i'm dreaming you know uh so she's not quite yeah you know (laughs) do you have any idea what that could do to my book sales yeah (laughs) (laughs) i love kenny the cameraman i want his jacket oh his jacket's so cool yeah like if super yaki could release a a top story jacket oh man absolutely hell yeah like super yaki if you are listening to this please uh, please 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 take my like 75 dollars however much that would cost it's a leather jacket it's not going to be cheap yeah (laughs) and uh then we get the scene in the hallway where we get more of of the kids just being like isn't this exciting isn't this cool that this is happening it's kind of like breaking the status quo right and then we get a couple of teenage shitheads (laughs) sprinting down the hallway in ghost face ghost face suits which is one of the most realistic scenes in any movie ever of like what teenagers in high school is like yeah and it's what the it's what the school board hated about the script was that like none of these kids are taking these murders seriously and it's like they're kids they wouldn't yeah, yeah. They, like they wouldn't they don't know how to handle it it's like they no. don't know what to do it's human nature especially with children to take things that are scary and impossible to fully wrap around and try to be like well i'm not i can make fun of it so it's not in control of me right they're working through it they're trying to process it in the only way mm-hmm. that they know how yeah, yeah. And it's why, like, uh, okay, I don't, I don't want to skip ahead to the principal scene because I don't think it's like the next scene. No, no, no. We have the the Billy and Sydney scene. Oh, I love it. Yeah, he bumps yeah. into Billy, and Billy's like, "Look, I need to get. <laughs> I haven't been laid. <laughs> I want my girlfriend back." Oh man! And Sydney He's calls him tool. out. She's like, "I'm sorry, my trauma is inconvenient for your like teenage libido." Yeah. Ah, oh, mm-hmm. so good. She's great. And then I love that. I love that bit where she like runs. She walk walks away, storms off like to the bathroom. And then he like just like a beat where he's just like stupid. stupid. <laughs> it's, the, it's the only bit in this. Like, I love the way that it's parodied and in, in Scream 2. That scene um, is so like ugh, perfectly parodied in Scream 2. But the thing that I love about it here, though, is just like Billy, psychopathic Billy, the killer of the movie. He killed her mom is saying this and then she walks away and he's like stupid like, <laughs> it's 
And he's actively trying to murder her. Yes. Like, yeah. he is, like, actively trying to murder her, but he's, like, so upset that he has not wooed her yeah. in this moment. He blew his like, chances of, like, getting a home base. And he's, yeah. he's kind of, <laughs> the, the, you, know, you know, you watch the movie and you're like, well, why is he still, and, like, that's why he's Billy is because he kind of cares about both and he doesn't get why he can't have both. Right. And then we get the principal's office where... Uh, the principal is accosting the teenagers who were sprinting down the hall in Ghostface costumes and like threatens their lives. Mm-hmm. Like says, <laughs> I should open you and rip you open. You desensitize little shits. Yeah. And, Holy crap. <laughs> and it's, I love this scene for three reasons now as an adult. Yeah. Because it's so clearly like you should never talk to kids that way. <laughs> yeah. He should be fired. Yeah. As an educator, this scene upsets me yes. a lot. Sure. And then also there's like the red herring aspect of like, whoa, maybe he is the killer right. principal because he's so violent. Right. And then also it is an adult being like, you little shit. Why are you so desensitized? I should open you from end to end with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Which I don't think things have changed that much. Yeah. yeah. Also, the Foley in that scene is absolutely insane. Oh, um, the scissors? Yeah, the scissors. Shring, <laughs> shring. Like, it's, it's the most insane. I don't know what they were what they were on that day in the Foley room, but, like, guys. It's really, let's blow it up. That's, 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 that, those are some extreme scissors. It's, a scissor, it's scissors, not a sword being unsheathed. It's like Wolverine in X-Men you know Origins. Like yeah. I'm okay with it. I'll allow it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. I wouldn't want them to change it now. It's amazing. And then afterwards, one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie mm-hmm. that I've never really thought about before. It's basically Twitter. Yeah. Sydney is in a bathroom stall. Just, just like, I just need some space. And then two girls, potentially girls that she knows. Mm-hmm are like i heard that she's that she's a she's a schizophrenic she's a psychopath she's crazy and it like don't she she was a, she was a slut too like she was cheating on her and just talking about her dead mom like they know her mm-hmm. and like they have information and like it's like wow you're evil much it's like i watch a lot of ricky lake and it's like yeah it reminds me of what happens now where we have people speculating on like people having meltdowns or getting you know hurt or killed or anything or you know people cheating on each other and these strangers are like well i know everything about their lives because like i read this freaking magazine or something you yeah know? right yeah that scene was almost cut from the movie because what? you can perfectly cut because when she comes into the bathroom she's at the mirror hears people coming out of stalls goes into a stall to avoid people you get the scene with the everything and then when she finally comes out she leaves the stall goes back to the sink in the mirror and then hears something and then starts to think Ghostface is there. So they were going to cut from her entering to hearing Ghostface. Sure. Uh. And what happened was they put it in the movie just to see what it would feel like. And then Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson and Kevin, who didn't realize it when he wrote it, uh, they both simultaneously realized that it that scene is the keystone of Sydney's like internal trauma. Her isolation. Mm-hmm. Her isolation. How she feels versus how everyone sees her and just what she's dealing with. The 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 you know, the weight that she has on her shoulders. It's the keystone of, of her whole character arc in the movie. And Brian, it made me think of what you said earlier about I think now high schoolers have more of an access with or you know, just and and also the vocabulary. Like we're so much more aware. I don't yeah, like you said, like or it'd be more difficult to not see Sydney's humanity mm-hmm. uh-huh. as it maybe was like in 96. Mm-hmm. 
because kids are able to connect with each other and see that there are other people going through these things, other people going going through their own shit in their own lives, uh, even if I'm not around, you know, it's helping them out a lot. Yeah. It really is. And so she she does like some investigating where she thinks the bath the, there might be someone in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. So this ghost face in the bathroom, what's weird about it is like, I don't know who it is because mm-hmm. I don't know when or how Billy would have gotten in there. And she walked away from Stu to run into Billy. It's Maureen. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're um, already setting it up. Yeah. So so is this ghost face real or is she imagining oh. it? Like um, or is it just another kid being uh, an asshole? <laughs> another shithead. Yeah, another shithead. <laughs> and then we get a really great scene between Gale and Dewey where, like the scene with Gale and Sydney, we learn that Dewey's got more going on behind the hood than maybe you would give him credit for. He was 24 for a whole year. He was 20. Yeah, he's got, <laughs> the, he's got this charm that yeah. we haven't seen yet. Yeah. Where he can be kind of like, I got lines, I got moves. Yeah. And like he kind of he takes the muscle compliment of like, yeah, I know. I I, I had to develop muscle mass to counter my boyish good looks. And you're yeah. like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. He's great. I love him. Uh, the principal makes the announcement that because of the shenanigans, school has been canceled. Mm-hmm. And everyone's super happy about it. They don't care how. They're going to throw a party. Yep. Uh huh. <laughs> of course they are. <laughs> at a party at Stu's, which is the opposite of a curfew, guys. Just. Just putting that out there. Yeah. But they're in a home. So, you oh, know, it's fine. Yeah. Guess, watch, yeah all of this hit different watching this now in 2021. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's also a party being thrown by one of the killers. So, you know, <laughs> I guess that's part um, of it. So speaking of the scene where Tatum and and uh, at Sydney and Stu were like walking away from school on the sidewalk. I just thought that was some really gorgeous lighting. Yeah. The way the sun was coming in through the tree. It reminded me of Halloween. Yeah. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I also love when uh, when he invites them to the party, he like flips her over the shoulder, which is like very much like a high school kid thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. I really, I really like all of that. But then when they agree to come and they're like going to go get snacks, and they walk, start walking away, and uh, and he does that, like does that like <laughs> fist pump thing that he does, <laughs> um, that arm pump thing, and I'm just like, oh, he's genuinely excited that the plan is working. Oh yeah, he's hyped. Like it's not about the party; it's about like. Oh, it's about it's about to go down tonight. The principal just played right into his hand right yeah. there. Like I, I bet he and Billy were so psyched yeah. that they're like, "Oh, cool, school is canceled. Let's throw a party." And it, brilliant, it's Spe- great. And speaking of, we cut back to the principal's office where we have a, a very memorable death scene. Yeah. So here's the thing with this: this was never in the script. This scene was put in the script because Bob Weinstein. Told after reading the script for like the twentieth time, he he calls up Kevin Williams and he's like, "Kevin, there's like twenty five pages where nobody dies. You got to kill somebody. This is a horror <laughs> picture. Like you got to kill somebody." Okay, so simultaneously with this, Kevin Williamson was having an issue with getting people out of the party because, in order for the last portion of the film to take place, no one else but the but the people involved can be there. Right. So you can't have random party go random drunk party goers there when you're trying to think we're trying to do the thing. So originally he just had them kill everybody. Right. So like everybody just they just killed everybody and there's like a higher body count. But you never like saw them get killed. They're just dead like they're found dead or whatever. And that was that. But he never really liked it because it was just like eh, it was like he was just trying to like go through the motions to get to the the ending that he needed it to be. Right. 
So then when Bob Weinstein tells him you need to kill somebody and he's like, well, who do I kill? I guess I'll kill the principal. He realized that by killing the principal, he could have Randy tell them about the principal being dead, which would then make them all want to go run and go see the crime scene and therefore leave the party. So by killing the principal, it killed two birds with one stone. It's perfect. It's great. That's how you use a note. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So that's that's why the principal dies. I've always wondered. What the hell is the point of this scene? Why did Ghostface kill this guy? And and really, <laughs> what it's funny about it is you guys are just saying about how they did it. He did them a favor, and they're like, "Thanks, man," and just kill him. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You've always said you're not wrong. <laughs> and one of my favorite, I always love the transition between like Henry Winkler's eye and Ghostface, and then cut immediately to schools out. Yeah. Tatum and Sydney are having a heart-to-heart on the porch while D- while Alice Cooper's playing. I really love the, the record player sticking out of the uh, the window. It just makes me nostalgic. Mm-hmm. And I, I I like this scene. It's kind of like you can see Tatum's having difficulty like being there for Sid the way that she kind of wants her friend to be mm-hmm. and is like making her feel better, but in kind of the only way that she is equipped to do being a kid. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Wes Carpenter flick. A Wes Carpenter flick. Yeah. <laughs> the Richard Gere gerbil story. And then yeah. we cut to Randy working at the video store. Well, right before that, there's that weird thing where like Ghostface is in the woods. And they, these are these are the things that like they got rid of in the sequels, I think, because they just realized like this doesn't make any sense. Like, what's he doing out there? Like, why yeah, is right. that Jason? Yeah, right. Why are Billy and Stu in their ghost face costume just like out in the woods? They can't hear what they're talking about from there. Like it kind of works in if you think of Billy Loomis going like full Daniel Day Lewis. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Which I do like. I like that. Well, in the movie Daniel Day Lewis. Daniel Day Lewis. Daniel Day Lewis. Great. Mission accomplished. <laughs> this whole thing was Thanks for it. setting that one up for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, and then, yeah, uh, yeah. Then we have Randy at the video store. I'm always anytime a video a movie has a video store scene, I'm down. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. That's great. And this video store is like just Huge. a straight up blockbuster. I mean, it's not, yeah. but like it is. I was thinking like <laughs> no mom and pop store was ever this big. No, no, no way, no way. This is a blockbuster. <laughs> There's a Clerks poster. Shout out to Miramax. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Clerks poster too is also a shout out to the other movie. That was like the first movie to have people talk about movies the way that we talk about movies. Yeah, in a video store. In a, well, yeah, I know, like, I know, yeah. yeah, but yeah, I mean, you know, be like movies didn't talk about movies, you know, really. Oh, like yeah. they they talked about fake movies. They didn't talk about real ones. They didn't make references. And and in between this and Clerks, it started this. 90s meta textual conversation thing and so that was their way of like kind of like paying homage <laughs> yeah i definitely started developing a sense of like i was watching clerks and like jay and silent bob mm-hmm. and dogma in the same at the same time on cable mm-hmm. and so yeah. i was like oh right writing dialogue yeah 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 absolutely. absolutely i I just i love i love i love the randy stew scene yeah it's just mm-hmm. like they're just they're just kids and the circumstances is so crazy but they do still feel like two high school guys joshing each other i also really really like this time watching it Stu gets a little nervous when randy starts getting loud yeah uh-huh Dude's like, you know, like, oh, dude, he's gonna be stabbed. His eyes are gonna be. And dude's like, shut up, dude, shut up. And I'm like, oh, because he's like, he doesn't want any eyes on him, right? 
And he's not right. as cool and collected as uh, as Billy. Yeah. So I guess I haven't talked about Randy yet. Randy played, of course, by Jamie Kennedy. Jamie Kennedy, I thought, was going to be one of my favorite actors. I really did. Because of Randy. Right, right. Randy is great. And he's even better in Scream 2. And yeah. and I I thought like, oh man, this is he's gonna be like a hero of like nerds and dorks everywhere. He's gonna be like the guy. But the problem is he just thought himself too much of a comedian and thought of himself too much of like a Jerry Lewis type, which is what that whole Jerry Lewis impression is earlier with the liver in the mailbox thing and like oh, funny yeah. voices and <laughs> like he's that he wants to be that guy, funny voices guy and weird wacky characters guy. And so Randy as a character is not really his thing. He had done Romeo and Juliet at this point, and that's kind of it. But that's he was a sketch comedy guy. He wanted to be in sketch comedy. He did sketch comedy. He did stand up. He wanted to be in comedy. This was not his thing. He rolled with it and and took the acting gigs that gave gave him. But like this wasn't something that he was super passionate about. He wanted to do Malibu's Most Wanted. Yeah, exactly. This was all just leading to Malibu's Most Wanted and of course his tour de force, Son of the Mask. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's crazy how quickly and the Jamie Kennedy ex- experience, of course. Right. But yeah, it's it's he used the cachet of playing Randy to try to kickstart this comedy career that just went nowhere. But he is so good in these two movies. And uh, apparently, in terms of Randy as a character, it was very, very close between him and Breckenmeyer. So there is a (laughs) world where Breckenmeyer would have played Randy. That's so funny because thinking about Jamie Kennedy, it made me think about Seth Green. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. Seth Green has also had kind of a surprising career. Yeah. In kind of the opposite way where like you watch Oz and you're like, oh, he's so cool. And, yeah. But but he had just gotten uh, Seth, Seth Green just got one of his like post adolescent roles in 1996 in Austin Powers. So right. uh-huh. with with Scott Evil. So that had just started for him as well. Breck and Meyer had been around. He was he was in Clueless, yeah. you know, a couple of other things. But ultimately, I think they they decided on Jamie, Jamie Kennedy because he was less attractive than Breck and Meyer. Yeah. And therefore more believable as like a dork. Uh, Stu's reaction to like, do you ever think like Sydney could be like being to me? Yeah. So and it's like, yeah, you're Breck and Meyer. Of course she would. But like, right. but Jamie Kennedy, you believe uh, Stu's reaction to that question? Uh, yeah, Billy confronts Stewie. Stu, uh, Billy confronts Randy. Ask him what his motive would be. It's the Millennium. Motives are incidental. Yes, yes. We don't uh, talk about the Millennium anymore. No, and it wasn't quite the Millennium. It, we were still four ways, four we, years away from. We that. talked about it a lot more as it was getting ready to happen. Yeah. Like they referenced yeah. the Millennium and Devil's Advocate we watched a couple of weeks ago. There was an X Files spinoff called Millennium. And then we get the uh the town getting ready for a curfew. <laughs> yes. Uh and we get red right hand with that, with the car driving up and the and the door shut in time with the Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, it's so good. Uh Tatum and Dewey and uh Sydney are talking. We get the fun like who would play me in the movie? And Sydney re- throws some real shade at Tori Spelling. Yep. Shade that gets paid off in the next movie in a really fun way. One of the greatest setups. It, yeah. It's such a great joke. It's, I love it. It's, it's like it was planned, but it wasn't. And that's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, there's also this great bit where they're like, they're like, yeah, we're going to go get snacks. And he was like, yeah, okay. And, and then he turns his head and look, sees something and then goes off to it. Right. 
And then you go and you follow them and they're in the grocery store and then you see Ghostface in the reflection. And then you go to Dewey and he's got his ice cream cone and walks up to the to the sheriff. And so you could say, oh, was he Ghostface in the grocery store or did he just go and buy himself an ice cream cone? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I I love I loved Sydney and Tatum in the grocery store. There's nothing like a pre-party grocery store run. Yeah. When you're a teenager. Although I have a lot of questions about their snack choices. She bought like a pint of ice cream and I'm like, what, what good is that going to do at a party? That's just potato. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is she buying, is she buying that for the party? Is she buying it for herself? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I they're love, just buying their own snacks. I think Ghostface being in the grocery store is like the most like hard to swallow part of the movie mm-hmm. of like, wow, that's bold. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. Though I'm glad they got rid of all of those in the sequels <laughs> yeah. because it is it's not good. Yeah, it is. It is supremely silly to to a degree that is like this whole movie is very serious in terms of like how it plays the the kills. You and, can almost and time everything. Yeah, but then those things happen, and they're just there to set up more red herrings. They don't make any sense in hindsight. Uh, yeah. I, I really like Dewey. With his ice cream cone while the sheriff has the cigarette. Yeah. That's just like... Every time he hits the cigarette, like Dewey hits the ice cream cone. So good. (laughs) I love that. Cannot be a little kid. God. God damn it. I love Dewey so much. I really like as the party as the the party's happening at Stu's house. You see the van drive up, and you see the like energy bar wrapper fall. That's uh, no, no, uh, uh, Who's that? a, a reduced reduced fat lays after after. Uh, oh, because she calls uh, him yeah, fat. Yeah, after he call, calls him a fat tub of lard. No. Oh. Yeah, he starts eating reduced fat uh, and baked <laughs> baked chips. Were those the Olestra chips? Yeah, they would have been the those infamous are the ones, ones. Those are the ones that make you shit your pants. Yeah, I mean you'll lose some weight, right? Anal leaking. That was the Ew. big thing with that. Oh, God, yeah. Scott. Yeah. I was avoiding that phrase. Yeah, that was the that was the phrase that uh, turned people off reduced fat chips for a long time. Uh, <laughs> Dewey drops Tatum and Sid at the party, has another cute tete-a-tete with Gail. So uh before we before we get into the party, one, no, I want to mention two things. Um one, it's crazy to me that that's the last time we see the sheriff. Yeah. He's never in the movie again. He has this big scene where he's like talking about like, mm, who could it be? Who could it be? We never see him again. <laughs> like he, he could, could be in the last scene when everyone's coming out of the house the next day, but he's not right. there. He's just not in the movie any, ever again. So or that's the series. really funny. Or the series. Absolutely. Yeah. He could have been in, uh, he could have been in Scream 4, like retired or something. So this scene, the party scene, the thing that's interesting about this, this is scene 118 in the script. Scene 118 which, because of the way that Kevin Williamson wrote it, scene 118 is 42 pages long, and this took 21 days to shoot. So the way that the shoot worked was they shot the Drew Barrymore stuff, they shot everything else, and then they shot scene 118. It took 21 days of overnight shoots to finish this, the rest of the movie. Way to go, Kevin. Yeah, everybody, the whole cast and crew gave him shit. For all 21 days. Because he was there with them the whole time. Because he was like... Because he took the deal. Yeah, because he took the deal. So he was on set the whole time, and they were all giving him shit. They're like, hey, uh, hey, Kevin, you know what would have been a, a, a really crazy thing for you to do? A really a really way to twist the tropes as if this whole place, this whole movie took place during the day, you asshole. <laughs> like, it, was like, it was like shit like that. That's like the monkey's paw. Constantly. Like, you're going to be on set every day working with the actors, bringing your baby to life. They're going to constantly rib you about this insane 
structure choice you put yeah. in your second ever script. And and insane, it was so insane because if you take the Drew Barrymore scene out of the equation, right? The movie is split completely in half. This is the halfway point of the movie if you take the Drew Barrymore scene out of the equation. And so the third act of the movie in a lot of ways starts halfway through the movie, which is crazy to think about. Um, Now, granted, I would say the third act of the movie is when Billy turns around and says, uh, we all go a little mad sometimes. I would Uh say that's the actual third act of the movie, but, but it is, it takes place within scene 118. Like, you know, like you're, you're halfway through scene 118 when the third act starts, when they wrapped this scene, Wes Craven brought t-shirts for everybody, bought t-shirts and hats for everyone that said, I survived scene 118. Uh, so it was like, it was like a really fun thing uh, because it was like scene 118 was like the longest scene any of them had ever shot. And yeah, the structure of this movie is insane. It makes sense that the person who wrote it didn't know what the fuck they were doing because uh, <laughs> it was only the second screenplay they'd ever written. Because, yeah, no no sane uh, uh, screenwriter would ever write a movie with a structure like this. And, you know, watching it, you don't think ever like, boy, are we going to leave the house? Because you, you, you're like locked yeah. in. Oh, 100%. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, love Stu's bathrobe. Yeah. His like Hugh Hefner robe. Yeah. He's loving it. Yeah. Uh, Gail. <laughs> Gail crashes the party. Everyone's super psyched that the lady from the the, the TV is, is there in real yeah. life. <laughs> it's that chick from Top Story. <laughs> uh, Dewey kind of breaks the news about the dad's phone, right? Like the like the calls are made with the dad's phone, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. And now they're gonna like go. They're gonna go search for you know to make sure that there's nothing crazy going on. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. Tatum goes to get beer after saying that she's not the beer wench. So watching it this time. I never really appreciated that like Stu kind of sends Tatum out to die. Yeah. Yep. Like go get me beer. Okay. Uh, asshole. But then like, I, I, I assume that's Stu. Oh no. Out there. No, that's Billy. That's Billy. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Billy, yeah. Billy comes to the front door shortly after. Got it. Got it. Got yeah. It, got it. No. And, and yeah. And there's something to be said about giving your most like likable, fun character. The movies like most gruesome, memorable death. Yeah. Mm hmm. And I mean, the reason that they do it from a motive standpoint is just like we can't have anyone alive who knows us particularly well because they might start to suspect us afterward. Mm -hmm. They all have to be dead so that the only people who know us are our parents. And, you know, that's it. Like know us on a personal level, right? Yeah. We have a lot of acquaintances. We don't need to call kill all of them. We're popular but, guys. We're both jocks and nerds, right? But we cannot keep your girlfriend alive because, like, how do we get her out of the house so that we can wrap this thing up? Like, there's there's no way that this ends with her alive if we're going to get away with it. And so, yeah, he sends her out there to die. Yeah. But you know, he's a psychopath, just like Billy is, or at the very least, he's a sociopath. And and, you know, uh, suffers from uh, peer pressure <laughs> issues, <laughs> you know, he yeah, he sends his girlfriend out there, but like he doesn't really care about the, about her. Uh, you know? The line. Uh, no, Mr. Ghostface, I want to be in the sequel. It's always so great. Yeah. So uh-huh. sweet. Yeah, for sure. Because, sure. yeah, like you're rooting for Tatum and, it, and, it, and it's like it's it's so interesting how this movie, again, like, deli- like has the cake and eats it, too, where it has this true blue inventive 
horror movie death that's right up there with anything from a Jason and a Freddy, mm -hmm. but it has that weight of like you like Tatum and like she's a real person. Yeah. And you're even like and then you're sad because like, oh no, you know Sydney's going to find out about this eventually. Yeah. She's already mm -hmm. so alone. The movie's given her so little and it's already taking it's still taking away from her. Right, right. Speaking of the beer wench though, uh, I do want to give the movie props for a realistic high school party because they don't have a keg. Because yeah. here's the thing. High schools, high school parties, they don't have kegs. You can't get a keg as a high schooler. You can't. It's impossible. You can probably find a way to get like a bunch of bottles of beer or cans of beer. Definitely. Sure. But like a keg? No. And so I love like they're doing the uh, the they're doing a, a keg stand. They're doing like a beer bomb, but it's like with a bottle. They're like pouring a bottle of beer into a funnel and, and a funnel in a tube. And it's like, yeah, that's what it would be like in high school. You wouldn't have a keg. So I like that there's like bottles in the fridge and it's like a whole a whole uh, thing. Beer to the groin. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Oh, so good. Yeah. The sound really great. Uh, like Foley or sound on that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just smashes right through it. It's a it's a really it's a really good scene. Um, it's definitely one of the scenes they had to trim back to get their R rating. Mm -hmm. So it does. I will say, her getting crushed to death in the garage door is one of the sillier deaths in the movie. It's the most slasher movie death. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, it absolutely is. Yeah, death by garage. It's my door. favorite in the whole movie, though. Oh I, wow, I, okay. Yeah, I something about the creativity of it because it's not just you know being stabbed. I think it's just it, right. it's. And I, I just love her desperate, you know, need to escape. She's trying to yeah. get out as best she can, and the dread as the gate is slowly and like yeah. she uh -huh. sees it and we see it. They also, they, you know, they kind of foreshadow it early in, early on when she walks right in. She hits the button and I, and I think she opens the garage door a little bit. And she stops it and then brings it back down. Right. So, yeah. Like she she's trying to turn on the light and then that's just how she gets the light on. Right. I think it's a good scene. Yeah. I think a good horror movie death is when you are are never able to look at something the same way again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like yeah, like you can never really look at a garage door. Just like you can never drive behind a bunch of uh, logs of wood again after Final Destination. I've never even seen Final Destination. I can't drive behind yeah. logs again. Ever. <laughs> Billy crashes the party. Mm -hmm. Tries to start drama. Sydney's not there for it. Yeah. Oh really, Alicia? Uh, Stu's like, you guys can go up into my room if you want. And Billy's like, subtlety, Stu, learn it. Super nineties dialogue. Yeah. Uh, we cut back to the van. Tact, not subtlety. That's what it yeah, is. Tact. Uh, Gail and uh, Kenny by the van. We mm -hmm. that's where the the delay is set up. Yeah, they slipped in a satellite camera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> slipped is very generous. It's like right on top of the TV. Or yeah, <laughs> but they're all drunk. It's fine. It, it, it looks it, like it's it about in. the same size as a VHS tape. So yeah, yeah. they're drunk. It and works well. They're drunk and it's 1996. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, yeah, the delay is a really fun gimmick. I I, yeah, I, I love great. the way that that pays off later. I do want to mention something else very important about scene 118. So dailies were coming in and Wes Craven and the DP, Mark Irwin, were watching the dailies and all of the dailies were out of focus. And Wes Craven was like, what's going on, man? And he was like, I don't know. They were in focus in the camera. I would have thought he's and then. Uh, Bob Weinstein was furious, right? Because this was going to cost them another day of reshoots, reshoot everything that they shot before. And they were like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fire your whole camera crew, the whole camera crew, because they're the reason this happened. 
Uh, because, you know, typically the DP tells everyone what to do and how to set up the shot, but, you know, they don't always handle the camera themselves. Like, they usually have, like, camera support for a lot of that. Yeah, so they were going to fire the whole camera department and, and rehire a new camera department to finish the movie. And Mark Irwin was like, no, if you're going to fire them, you're going to fire me. And they're like, great, we'll fire you too. And so Bob Weinstein fires Mark Irwin. And he's replaced the very next day by Peter Deming, DP Peter Deming, who finished the rest of the movie and would go on to DP Scream 2, Scream 3 and Scream 4. Wow. Yeah, they just like the the, Bob Weinstein just fired Mark Irwin for staying standing by his crew. God, I can't I I, I can't help but think about what that must have done to the set. Yeah. Like to have an entire chunk of the crew, people that you've like made working relationships with, right. camaraderie. Right. You know, film set, you kind of learn how to trust people and to have that stripped away so close to the finish line, it's yeah. pretty crazy. Especially like, on on a shoot like the one they were in the middle of, scene 118, where it was like it's one scene and and you're you're we've been on this for like 10 days and there's 11 days left and you're you're get bringing in a whole new camera department that's a new dp yeah new dp and camera department that's crazy but yeah that's exactly what they did it's hard to talk about because i do prefer peter deming i think peter deming's work in the next the the next scream movies all of the sequels is like incredible but you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's a bummer from from the just the way that it all rolled out i think that really really sucks and mark Irwin uh talked about it and he was like to this day I didn't see what the Weinsteins were seeing. I didn't see what was wrong with the, with the dailies. And so I almost wonder if there was something else going on that we may never know about some sort of interpersonal issues that the Weinsteins had with him. I'm not sure, but I know Wes Craven doesn't talk about Mark Irwin leaving and uh, Mark Irwin was interviewed about it. And yeah, he was just like, I, I don't know what happened. I don't know. So damn, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's a real bummer. And the wine scenes have a legacy of kind of like, you know, grab, you know, sticking their fucking grubby paws into a movie yep. and kind of shaking it around sometimes yep. just for the sake of their own ego. Yeah. But uh, anyway. Yeah. I uh, We get Billy and Sydney in the bedroom. And I, I love that scene where you kind of you see Sydney trying to connect with Billy because mm-hmm. she wants intimacy. Mm-hmm. She wants to like she, she wants to w- let people, someone in. She wants to let someone in. And mm-hmm. she's like, well, could it be Billy? Could it be this guy? And they have this really sad conversation where, you know, Sydney's giving her heart, putting her heart out there. And Billy's like, oh, yeah, it's like that scene in Silence of the Lambs. And Sydney's like, it's life isn't a movie. And Billy's like, 100 percent. Yes, it is. <laughs> and I found it really fascinating that we have these two characters. Sydney really badly, I think, wants to be a part of the world again. Mm-hmm. she wants to move past this trauma. She wants to reenter the world and feel like a regular kid or person again. And Billy doesn't want that. Billy is gone. He wants to create his own world. And Sydney is a part of that world. Right. And so we have this really uncomfortable, compelling sex scene where like Sydney commits the cardinal sin of a horror movie. She, she loses her virginity. She has sex. Right. And what she's trying to get out of it slash getting out of it, is very different from what Billy is getting out of it. Right. And where this is coupled, this is intercut with a bunch of gross drunk high school guys leering at Jamie Lee Curtis on Halloween, wondering when she's going to show her boobs. Right. 
as, and Randy explaining the rules. Yes. yes. Uh, and it's just, it's just a, a, a fucking masterclass and just the way it's handling all this different stuff simultaneously. It's really cool. And one of the things that Kevin put in the script and the reason why the PG 13 relationship and the sex scene both uh, have no nudity is because he explicitly put in the script that you don't see anything because he wanted to play on those horror tropes of TNA and he wanted to be like, no, this is this is hers. She owns this. She can show it and share it with who she wants. And she's choosing to show it and share it with this person, not with you, horny audience member. Um, <laughs> and uh, I kind of love that. I love that. And I love that Wes Craven agreed with it and was like, oh, wow. And it's one of the things that sold him on the movie is when Kevin presented that aspect of it because of all the feelings that he was having about the misogyny and the horror genre he wanted to turn that on his head and this was the perfect opportunity mm -hmm. the movie's better for it yeah and scream 2 you know you get the uh, that opening scene with casey becker and stab right and instead of her going around being a normal high schooler like oh i'm gonna take a shower in this scene for no reason and right. uh, such a great statement on what horror movies are right. normally like right. what what hollywood would do with this story right yeah, and like, or going back to cab, jumping forward to Cabin in the Woods, where it deals with the the genre's weird need for punishing women, yeah, for owning their sexuality or being playful with that sexuality or right. trying it out and you know, dumbing characters down again. Right. Uh, I freaking love the rules scene. Yes, I love it every time. And what I what I love about it, watching it this time, is these kids are laughing in the face of death. Mm -hmm. They're kids in a horror movie that are that he's like okay if you want to survive this horror movie that we're a part of you can't have sex you can't smoke you can't drink and they're like fuck you <laughs> yeah we'd rather <laughs> die and like they almost did they almost all died in another yeah. draft of the script right and so there's just always something really kind of like weirdly heartwarming about that scene yeah yeah no it's 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 fantastic and it's interesting because it it creates a world where Randy is the end all be all of knowledge about what they're going through and, you know, becomes the sort of patron saint of horror tropes in the sequel. And then, uh, and then especially in the third movie where he's literally talking to them from beyond the grave, <laughs> almost like Yoda. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I wanted to, I, I was so disappointed. They didn't find a way to bring him back for scream four. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Sid, it's me, the Randy bot. Bloop, bleep, bloop. bloop. <laughs> yeah. I think, I believe his sister from three is in five, is in screen yes, five. I think so. Um, so I, th I think that's interesting. I can't wait to see how they incorporate her. And then, uh, like Scott said, Kevin Williamson had found a way to get everyone to leave the party. The principal has been killed. And they're like, well, what are we waiting for? Let's go. <laughs> bunch, of, bunch of little fucking sociopaths. <laughs> <laughs> And it's it's really cool because at first I was like, oh, is Randy like, guys, that's dark. But then he was like, no, don't leave. I was I had friends. We were having a party. You know what? You know what plays rent free in my head all the time? That that group of idiots driving down that road going. That's that just in my head all like sometimes just randomly. Oh, man. Not a care in the world. They're all such idiots. Uh, they nearly run Dewey and Gale off the road. Yep, and like they do a, a roll down the hill, and uh, they la they land in a compromising position. Yeah, 
and they find Sydney's dad's car. So when 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 uh, when Gail says, "Is that what you're looking for?" and and Dewey keeps staring at her and says, "All my life," that was an ad lib. Wow! And, and it was him talking to Courtney Cox because, as we all know, they very much fell in love while mm-hmm. while making this movie and uh, would would eventually uh, get married post Scream Two. Courtney I Cox Arquette. Yes. I love that. I I love that you can see genuine love in his eyes. Like he is into Courtney Cox, and it's uh, it's it's really kind of charming to see. I, I I really love that. And her her look when he says that, and she's like, ah, "This doofus, look over there, look at that thing." <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. We go back to the bedroom just as Sydney's like, "You're the fucking killer, aren't you?" He's killed. Yes. And it's I, I, what horror is so great at is a great horror movie is so good at being with the audience and rewarding them and challenging them in different ways. Mm-hmm. And like just like knowing that you're you know, it's him, but then taking that away from you. And and is, the, the thing that's really cool about it, too, is that happens. And I me knowing that Stu is one of the killers and, and that that ghost face is Stu. Right. Is it has to be. I think that that what what I love about that is that like you don't even notice that we haven't seen Stu since he told them to go upstairs. He hasn't been in the movie. Where's he been? Where's he at? What's he doing right now? Everybody just left to go see the principal. Randy is alone in the living room. Where's Stu? And it never crosses your mind while you're watching the movie. That like, oh, that's obviously Stu. Stu is Ghostface. Stu is the killer. Like, you would think immediately we would all be like, oh, Stu must be the killer. Mm -hmm. But we don't. And I don't know what magic trick that is, but it's amazing. I think it's everything that we've been talking about. There's so much else going on. Yeah. You're like watching Dewey fall in love with Gail. Yeah. You're watching Sydney. You're watching Randy and the rules that you're like, you're not missing him. Right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because we haven't seen him since he said, I'll be right back. I'll be right back. <laughs> he must be dead. That's, that's yeah. what's, what's going on. Yeah, maybe that's what they. Like, oh, he's dead. They're gonna find his body. Like when Sydney falls out the window, survives, and then finds Tatum's body hanging oh. in the garage. Oh, heartbreaking! What a horrible way to find yeah, your, your best friend. Your best friend. That's just. Oh, like it's bad enough that she's dead, but the way that she's dead is just. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, you, uh-huh. well, you think about how Casey's parents found Casey at the beginning of the movie. You know, these are, are, are rotten little bastards. Yeah, they are. Back in the van, we see, well, Randy's watching Halloween, kind of in that post-party sad drunk mode where you're back to, you're alone again, and you're falling asleep. They see Kenny, or Kenny and Gail, no, no, just Kenny in the van, sees like the tape delay happens. Sid runs out, meets Kenny in the van. Yeah. Uh, they killed Kenny. Yeah, so, so the death of Kenny <laughs> is... I think the most heroic moment in the franchise because he sees the delay and he's like, Oh my God, I have to warn this kid. Like he's about to get killed. And like, that's what kills him is like Uh his desire to help this kid that he doesn't know, but he's been watching on this satellite camera for like a a couple of hours. And he's like, no, I can't let this kid die. I have to save him. And that's what gets his throat slit. Mm -hmm. is that goddamn delay it's kind of amazing and this weird i don't know if you would call this poetic irony or or what this is but it's something i realized watching this time (laughs) that i thought was just this weird i don't know if it's just a coincidence or what but like okay 
Kenny the cameraman tries to save Randy from getting killed and then ends up getting killed outside of his camera van. And then in the sequel, Randy dies in a camera van. I don't know what that is. I don't know what you call that, but it's very strange that like both of these things involve camera vans and Randy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and Randy. I think George Lucas says, uh, was it Echoes? Yeah, or... yeah, it's poetry, it rhymes. Yeah, <laughs> and like Randy was also kind of similarly sort of throwing himself in danger and harm's way, kind of being a distraction. Right. If I remember Yeah, correctly. that's very true. Yeah, he was being uh, a heroic right. in that moment. Yeah. Uh, Sydney runs away, hops a fence. Dewey goes in, Glock out. Gail finds Kenny's body. We get that great scene where, like, she sees the blood first, that really delicious-looking, like, red movie blood syrup. Hell yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, he's, she's driving the van. The body slides down the van. Although although the way she's going backwards and hits the brakes, yeah. the body would go in the opposite direction. It would not go forward. That's always bugged me. Yeah, it's and physics, it, man. And it would look hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> So the MPAA wouldn't allow dripping blood, but they're okay with the windshield wiper blood. Yeah, apparently. Like, I, I'm sorry, that's worse than dripping blood. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, what a what a great van crash. Yeah. Oh man, but I love Randy being like, "Hey, what's going on?" <laughs> oh! <laughs> just slammed in the face. So much. That was a really good like kid drunk acting of just like, "Hey, what's going For on?" Sure. Something I didn't really appreciate, but watching it this time, I really like that scene where Sid locks herself in Dewey's car. Yes. And then, like, Ghostface has the keys and shows it to her. And then when the trunk opens. Yes. But Sid doesn't see the trunk open, but you, the audience member, knows yes. the trunk is open. It's yeah. so cool. Dramatic irony. Yeah. the uh, I That scene, it was the first scene that Kevin ever wrote for this. And he wrote it as just a scene to be used in a horror movie one day that I'm going to write. And he just wrote oh, that wow. scene right. of just like heroin killer. And that's it. Heroin's in the car. Killer has the keys. And they play a little a little game. That was the scene. And he just wrote that and stuck it somewhere. And then when he got to this movie, he was like, oh, I'm going to use that scene. Nice. So pretty cool. Good use of it. Yeah. And I really like the moment where uh, City gets out, gets the gun. And then both Randy and Stu are like, no, shoot him. He's the killer. And yeah. and, and Neff Campbell's like, fuck both of you. Just, Randy had it figured out, though. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but it's cool. And it's super realistic because I think in a lot of movies, especially horror movies, uh, it, you know, doubly so if they're written by men or directed by men, they like need the protagonist to be like, well, she's kind and caring and she would help. She wouldn't like, oh, what do I do? But Sydney's like, no, fuck both of you. Yeah. Like, you're both my friends, but, like, I am in flight-or-flight survival mode. Right, right. And I, I really mm -hmm. admire that. Yeah. No, it's great. And, frankly, is she really friends with them, or is she only friends with them because Billy's friends with them? Right, yeah. It's kind or of because Tatum, Tatum is friends with them. Tatum, yeah. yeah. It's that cool kind of high school thing where it's like, yeah, they hang out every day, but are these good friends? Right. And then Billy Loomis comes stumbling down the stairs in a performance by Skeet Ulrich, which rides a line. <laughs> where you have to believe that this guy who just got his chest ripped open with a, from a knife, like stabbed multiple times, is somehow still alive. And somehow he pulls it off. I don't know. I don't yeah. know how he pulls it off, but he does it and uh, and does it well. That's why he gets to get over. tumble down the stairs. It's real good. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It looked like it hurt. Wooden stairs, yeah. man. That looked like it Ooh, hurt. Ow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. We, uh, uh, he quotes Psycho. Yeah, we psycho. all go a little mad sometimes. Yeah, the setup to that is not my favorite thing, where Randy's like, it's Stu, he's the killer, he's gone mad. That's like, that's a weird way to say that. He's gone <laughs> mad. 
<laughs> and I, it's great. I think this is so. I forgot who it is. If it's Randy or no, it's Sydney. Sydney runs into the hallway, bumps into Stu, and that's when you're like, "Oh my god, Stu's the bad guy." There are two killers. Yep. And it's the best kind of. There's never a part where it feels like there's a twist. Yeah. Where the rug is pulled out from underuse, and this movie made me really think of the difference between tricking your audience and rewarding your audience. Yes. Hmm. And, mm-hmm. and when you look at a movie like, because the closest thing that I can really, I kept thinking about Jordan Peele during this movie, because mm. I think Jordan Peele is also a, a new master at knowing what the audience is thinking and following them along. And both us and Get Out are like big concept heavy movies. We're like, I don't want to know anything going in. Like, don't tell me. I want to. Uh, but I wouldn't say either of those movies have a twist. Right. Like a like a like an M. Night Shyamalan twist where like. Uh, you thought it was this, but it's this. Right, right. And I, mm-hmm. that's where my brain was at. It's like it feels like this movie rewards you for paying attention, right? But still surprises you, where you're like, "Oh, there's two killers." Yeah, like the cop car scene in in Get Out. Yeah, yeah, where like that cop car shows up, and you're like, "Oh no!" And then it's his friend, and you're like, "Yay!" <laughs> like like you're, you're so relieved, but like realize in that moment that that makes complete sense because mm-hmm. he would have a car like that, being like airport security or whatever he is. Yeah. So it's like it's yeah, it's that kind of it's that kind of reveal of yeah. like the like, oh, th- this I'm I'm in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, mm-hmm. a what? There's two killers. It's of course there are. That makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. That makes so much more sense than one killer. <laughs> yeah. And this is when we get their classic, the classic. I don't know. I kept thinking about Knives Out as well. Mm-hmm. Also, like, you know, the, the part where the villain, the killer reveals their whole plan and what right. this was all about. Yeah. And we realized that this was really just like two shitty, bored teenage white guys that had become like so disassociated with reality that they picked this family in their town and like the Prescotts and like took their agency away and cast them in their story that they were making for them. Yeah. The performance of Billy and Stu in this sequence is mind-bogglingly good i mean this is it's crazy that no one in this movie was nominated for an oscar especially in like a post silence of the lambs winning best picture like there's no excuse like and the weinsteins being producers there's really no excuse like they love oscars they fucking love the oscars (laughs) um they 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 pay out like three times the budget of a movie to get it to win an oscar the fact that matthew lillard wasn't nominated for best supporting actor for this role is insane to me yeah and like this totally like 15 million dollar played at shopping malls hollywood horror movie reveals itself to have so much to say and is so thoughtful about violence and children's relationship with violence in ways that like most a lot of movies still don't feel like they're they're as darn darn getting it I don't yeah. know. There's like such, such an intelligence. And I don't know you listen to any interview with Wes Anderson and he's such like a deeply thoughtful guy. Yeah. And a sensitive guy. Yeah. And I think all that comes into display during this final scene of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, stabbing is so uncomfortable and like, right. Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So when Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich were talking about this scene and talking about their relationship, this, this side of their character's relationship that, we haven't seen that the that the movie hasn't presented up to this point this hidden part of their relationship what is this dynamic like what they decided on which i th- find when i when i read this i was like holy shit that's exactly what this is 
they decided that Billy is Captain Hook and Stu is Shmi. Oh, it's perfect. And it's like, oh my God, that's exactly what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. And and obviously Stu, Matthew Lillard added a little bit of a quality to the performance that adds a layer of maybe Stu's like kind of into Billy. There's definitely an element of that in there, the yeah. way that he interacts. Billy never seems to reciprocate that. It, al- it also but, feels very Manson-y. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. like Stu looks up to Billy and thinks mm-hmm. Billy is really smart. And some, you almost, you end this movie not knowing as much about Stu as Billy because Billy has such this rock hard worldview. Yeah. And it almost feels like Stu is just kind of leeching off of that yeah. to be closer to yeah, for sure. Billy. Yeah. But through this, you find out that they killed Casey because she dumped Stu. That's why they started with her. Yeah. I just, I want to kill my ex. Mm-hmm. That sucks. That sucks. I yeah. want to kill my ex and I want to kill her new boyfriend. That sucks. Yeah. These, these guys suck. And it, <laughs> and it speaks to their their ego and their arrogance that they can that they've consumed enough media that they figured it out. But you know what else I think it is? When I think about their their story, like if you watch Scream from their perspective, it really feels, especially with the line where Stu says, like, peer pressure, I'm far too sensitive. <laughs> I think that Casey and Steve were chosen, maybe not by Stu, but by Billy. To prove to Billy that Stu can kill somebody. Oh, okay. Like I was thinking that was uh, that was maybe thrown in as a way so Billy could throw Stu under the bus. Oh, possibly. That's also a possibility for sure. Yeah, I, I so think great. it might have been a little of column A, a little of column B. Because at that point, before Casey, Stu hadn't killed anybody. Only Billy had. Yeah, you're Bill, right. Billy had killed Marine, but Stu had nothing to do with that. But, you know, he concept. Right, right. Exactly. To be like, hey, are you capable of killing someone? Are you man enough? Whatever, whatever the thing is. I think that's why the KC thing happened and it kickstarted everything else. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I really appreciate the line because Sydney's like, so you just like went crazy because you watched too many horror movies. And Billy says, like, movies don't drive people psycho. They make psychos more creative. Right. And I don't know, in like in a post Joker's gonna make people cause violence world, it's like as as audiences become more intelligent, what is the responsibility of art? Right. And does art have a risk? Do we want to live in a world where like you can't do that because people might watch it and think the wrong thing? And it's like, well, is that my I'm an artist, is that my problem? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that they did the garage door kill was because they were hearing from the MPAA that they were very uncomfortable with the killer using a knife because anyone has access to a knife. Mm-hmm. It's in everybody's kitchen. And they were like, I don't, we don't like that. We want you to have kills that can't be recreated. And that's why, you know, you would have like Freddy Krueger with like knife fingers and, and like people becoming marionettes and falling off buildings. Y- yeah. Right. You would do all of these wacky things because the MPA was like, oh, good, that's not imitatable, so therefore you'll get your R rating. But with this, the reason that they were driving that NC-17 so hard was because a lot of it was imitatable, but that was the whole point of the movie. And they were like, yeah, it's a really great, beautiful, poignant movie, but we don't want kids killing each other because of it. And and so it was this tug of war mm-hmm. as a result something i really really appreciated this time sydney gets to become ghostface for a few seconds yeah she mm-hmm. she dons the costume and gets to make the call and do the ghostface voice yeah and there was just something really cool to me that this time watching it of like her getting to wear the 
suit of her demon and her attacker and become the demon for a few seconds. Yeah, that's and that's mm-hmm. the reason why whenever people say like, oh, Sydney should be the killer in the next scream, which is always a th- every time people are like, oh, Sydney's going to be the killer in this one. It happens every time. For some reason, people want this. I don't know why, but it, it always bugs me because it's like she got to be the killer in this one. Like, mm-hmm. she got to wear the ghost face mask, you got what you wanted, and it was the best version of it. Leave it alone. Stop trying to make her be ghost face. <laughs> drives me crazy. <laughs> In that scene, Skeet Ulrich has a chest plate, and he, he had surgery when he was young, and he has a chest plate, and it has an exposed wire that sticks out of his chest at all times. At least back then. I'm sure maybe it's been improved upon since then, since the you know 25 years since mm-hmm. this movie came out but he had this exposed wire and when you touch it it causes him extreme pain and he had something protecting his chest for the stunt woman to hit with the umbrella when she comes mm-hmm. out to stab him in the in the chest yeah. the problem was the stunt woman couldn't see through the ghost face mask and when she stabbed him she stabbed him right in the <gasps> spot and so his reaction in the movie he requested that he, the real one be in the movie that's not going to have happened for nothing. Like it's <laughs> right. going in the movie. Yeah. So his reaction, Damn right. <laughs> his reaction of excruciating pain of getting stabbed in the shoulder is real. He was really feeling that in that moment because she missed the Jeez. plate. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good on you, Skeet. Yeah. <laughs> I I love the bit with Matthew Lillard like taking the phone and crossing his <laughs> legs and being like, <laughs> like that that whole thing is so like him just like trying to get his dignity back while he's like bleeding out yeah. is so funny it's to me. a remarkable performance it's so funny mm-hmm. but then like you know it's like, such a loathsome character yeah but then also there's like my mom and dad are gonna be so mad at me oh yeah it's chef's kiss perfect line read just, yeah like, heartbreaking you're like this is like a dumb kid that was that was not a line he made that up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he made that up. Yeah, he made that up. He made peer pressure. I'm far too sensitive. The you hit me with the phone dick was him staying in character because <laughs> because Skeet Ulrich, when he went to throw the phone, it stuck to the corn syrup blood on his hand. And so he missed like throwing it at the desk and it hit him in the back of the head. And then he just stayed in character. I was like, you hit me with a phone, you dick. Like, it just it's so good. It's all so I, good. I had no idea about all of that being him and not the script. And I, I it makes me love this performance so much more. And it's already my favorite performance. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think I think Lillard might be the MVP of Scream One. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure he is. And yeah. you know, justice is served in movie land. He gets the the second most creative death of the movie, Death yeah. by TV. Mm-hmm. And that line, which is I've always had a thing for you, Sid. No, the in your dreams. Oh, okay. Uh, that line, which is my least favorite line in in the whole movie, was unfortunately improved by Neff Campbell because Matt Matthew Lillard and some of the other people were improving, so she wanted to do it. And unfortunately, I felt really bad because it's always been my least favorite line. But oh, I assumed was- Kevin Williamson wrote it, and then I found <laughs> out that she improved it, and I felt really bad. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But oh well. It's just it's a very like kind of stereotypical like horror heroine kind of line to me i don't know when you got mm-hmm. death by tv yeah you know in yeah, your dream but you like, say that with anything yeah right that's exactly that's exactly my point yeah. it's You're, just like you've been canceled but that would have been so much better <laughs> and it, and it would have stood the, the it would have stood uh <laughs> it would have stood the scope of time because it, it would, yeah it would have a whole new meeting now it's amazing it would have been incredible
Think about how many people would get to use that gif of you've been canceled and pushing the TV <laughs> every time somebody else comes out right. as like an asshole. Oh, what a missed opportunity. The story would have been rewritten. Oh, man. And wow. then Gail's okay. Gail got knocked out, by the way. She left the safety on. But then just as Billy is about to stab Sydney, yeah. Gail gets the final kill. That line that, that she says, which is one of my favorite lines of like, remember the safety that time, you bastard. <laughs> I, I love that line. That was a line. She was like, I want to say something. Like, after, <laughs> like I want to say something. And then Wes Craven was like, say this. And, and she did. And it rules. It's a great line. Randy's alive, too. And then he's mm-hmm. like, oh, this is the part where the killer comes back for one final <laughs> yeah. scare. The final kill. Yeah. The, the headshot. Yeah. yeah. Not, in my, not in my movie, bitch. Or yeah. Yeah. Uh, not in my movie. I also love that this movie gets the fuck gets out. out yeah, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like it's like movie's over. Get the hell out. Get out. It's over. <laughs> it, well, it's cool. It 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 ends with Gail getting her exclusive. Yep. And it's really, I think, it's telling that we don't end with Sydney. Yep. On a hospital truck with a blanket around her. Yep. She gets her line, but then the story doesn't belong to her anymore. It belongs yep. to Gail. Yep. It belongs to the media. It belongs to us now. Yep. And that is going to have big repercussions for Sydney going into Scream 2. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Dewey was supposed to be dead, and he was in the original script, because again, he was just a boring big brother cop character in the script. But Wes was so charmed by him that they filmed, just in case, just to slip it in and post, if audiences really liked him in test screenings, they shot him on the on the gurney getting like taken into the ambulance having survived and then the last shot the sort of like pull away the crane the shot away hard shot yeah the crane up um from the house from gail starting her her news story and the fade to the credits Bunch more teens got murdered yeah that was all done they did two takes of that because they needed it with the with the with the sunrise and uh, that was the first take. She learned those lines. Those lines weren't in the script. So she had to learn those lines like five seconds before cameras rolled. And she nailed it on the first take. Because she's in sitcom Great. mode. Baby. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. And that's Scream. What a what a picture. What a picture. Great movie. Oh, man. Yeah. It's a great movie. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our inaugural edition of our Scream miniseries. Brian, where can people find you if they want to hear more of you? can uh, check me out on theme park this it's scott and i along with our friend kyle's podcast where we take anything and we turn it into a theme park we just launched our second season with muppets and we got some more episodes coming up very soon with nicktoons and some other fun stuff yeah for sure if you're not already on our discord check out the discord that is uh, you can go to duelinggenre.com and there's a link at the top that links you uh, a lot of directly. Fun discussions going on. Yeah, links you directly to our Discord. You can find a franchiseography channel there, along with all of the other podcasts at duelinggenre.com. Join the Patreon. We just ran a voting right now. Nick and I don't know who won the round four franchise nomination. Series four, mini series four. Right. The one that follows X-Men, which is following this one. We don't know who won yet, but the people who decided were our Patreon supporters. And that's at duelinggenre.com slash support for $5 a month. You get three bonus podcasts a week in addition to all of the back catalog of everything we put out, which is over 300 podcasts. Not kidding. 300 things. I host a show called Dueling Genre Tonight, which is about entertainment news. Every week, there's Dueling Genre Verses, and along with a myriad of other stuff. So check that out at duelinggenre.com slash support. You can vote on future franchiseography things. And if we cross 100 patrons before the end of this miniseries, we will do the cursed bonus episode because... 
I really want to talk about Cursed because I think it's an important part of this story. Written I'm, by Kevin Williamson, directed by Wes Craven. Exactly. I'm going to talk about Cursed, whether we cover it or not, because it's important setup to Scream okay. 4. But I would like to talk about it in more detail than I would if I were to just have to mention it in passing in the Scream 4 episode. So help me out. Help yeah. me out. Let's Judy Greer and werewolves, everybody. Yeah. Let's do let's do cursed. We need to cross a hundred patrons in order to get there. As of this recording, I think we're sixteen away from from crossing a hundred, which isn't you know, isn't insane. So check it out and see if the uh, Patreon seems worth it to you. Duelinggenre.com slash support. And then, of course, just like we did with the last miniseries, we didn't get to talk about it on the show because we didn't decide until we had wrapped the, the Men in Black miniseries, but we are going to be doing Scream franchise memories in our next minisode at the conclusion of this miniseries. Scrimmeries! Scrimmeries. So send your <laughs> scrimmeries to franchiseography at duelinggenre.com. You can send us questions. You can send us memories of when you saw any of the Scream uh, any of the movies in the Scream franchise. You can send us whatever you want, Scream-related, and we'll talk about it in our mini-sode. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week with Scream 2. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Nick Cave and the Bad Seed. <laughs>